When you're sitting around the uh, Thanksgiving Day uh, table, does this mean it? Do you actually mean this when you say this? Uh, Mom, can I, can I help you with anything? No, of course. You don't really mean that, do you? I couldn't find this guy, so fast forward, a year goes by, we're close to wrapping up season three, finally I get a hold of Bruce Rocks, I find him after, you know, a Boba Fett-esque hunt. I debated whether or not I was going to release the books under my own name, because you obviously attract a lot of kooks in this field. Yeah, so Rocks giving just kind of all came together, and it was like, now we've got a Thanksgiving special. And it is a very nefarious plot, and it is extremely well dramatized, and it is entirely credible. The idea behind all of this program in the first place was to present ideas to the public in a way that was laughable enough that you could dismiss it, but serious enough that you could actually think about it. You could do both at the same time. And for the most part, it worked. We're talking about it now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And on this installment of the program, no leftovers, because it is Rucks Giving 2013. It's our way of giving back to you guys, saying thanks, saying thanks to Bruce Rucks for becoming such a big part of this program, and sort of just an, uh, you know, a big celebration all the way around, and I'm really excited about it, as usual. Our guest is, of course, the incomparable Bruce Rucks. He starred in the Rocks trilogy way back in Season 5, I believe, and then he went on to star in this holiday tradition that is known as Rocks Giving. There's really not much else to say. I talked to him a few days ago. We're both really looking forward to this. We've got a slew of questions from the BOA Audio listeners, tons of them, and uh, they cover all kinds of stuff. So we're going to be getting into a whole variety of different topics. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Thanks for taking part in another Rocks Giving. Always a pleasure, Tim. Did you ever think, uh, like I said before we started the show, I made a little joke there when we started the uh, the music. Did you ever think when you put the <laughs> when you put your name on the books that you'd not only be tracked down, but then then end up having your own holiday special? No, nope, definitely not. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's been an amazing uh, it's been an amazing ride. So I'm I'm really looking forward to tonight. What have you been up to since the last time we heard from you? I forgot to mention in my in my boisterous intro there that. Uh, you were also the first guest ever alongside Nick Redfern on the live show. So this is your second go-round here on BOA Live. But what have yes, you been up to since uh, around August when we last talked to you? Not a whole lot. Uh, just kind of general research and doing a lot of um, reading for entertainment and kind of relaxing for the most part. I'm kind of um, stuck on death watch for my mom and have been for a couple of years. She's not in any imminent health crisis, but she's going on 96 years old now, and she's been in a home for a couple of years. So I just kind of keep the home fires burning and uh, keep the house in order. Nice, nice. All right. That's kind. I hope everything goes okay. It made me sad now. Uh, start off. Oh, she's she's fine actually. Uh, <clears throat> I mentioned that I do these things. Mom doesn't even know how to operate a computer. <laughs> she's very <laughs> old. Uh, but I tell her that I'm doing these things. She says, "Oh, that's nice. Are you talking with friends?" I say, "Yes, I'm talking with friends, Mom." Says, oh, that's good. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So we are amongst friends here. This is the this is the show to really give back and give thanks, uh, you know, to the listeners and 
give them a chance to participate in all this. And like we've said before when we do the show, it's kind of like you and I are just sitting around having a beer somewhere. And so we we brought them all in uh, with us to join in on the fun as part of Ruck's giving. And now, I, I might actually have a beer before it's over. You never know. I'm drinking coffee right now. Nice, nice. We'll see if I can – well, maybe I'll dig one up here myself. We'll see. <laughs> there you go. Um, one thing I actually wanted to mention, this is completely off the off the – of the reservation on this whole thing is that I, I'm not a big fan. I don't know how you feel. I'm not a fan of this late Thanksgiving this year. This uh, November 28th is a bit too late in the month for me for Thanksgiving. It's, it's going to be weird. Christmas before we know it. Yeah, it's very weird. Uh, I'm used to having it in the third week, obviously, and when it comes all the way at the end, it's kind of like, uh, what? That's when you get those really late Easter's or really early Easter's. I don't mind the early Easter's, though. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's really weird. I looked it up, actually, because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Did they did they change something with Thanksgiving? That's what I was wondering at first. I thought it was always the third Thursday, but apparently there's some other condition at work because uh, this is the latest it can be for folks who want to impress their friends or family on Thanksgiving. Here's here we're going to drop some knowledge on you. The 28th is the latest Thanksgiving can be, and then the earliest it can be is the 22nd. Uh, I'm not sure the rules of how it all works, so you might want to look that up before you brag to your family, but. Next year, I think it circles back around. No, it starts working backwards now. So it'll be the 27th next year until it gets back to the 22nd, and then it loops to the 28th. I wouldn't be surprised if they figure it on the lunar calendar some way. They do that with Easter. Uh, Easter is always done on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the uh, solstice. It's it's always that. It's been that way all the way back to ancient Egypt. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, I'll look it up while we talk here, but I'm not sure what uh, what the rules are on that, but I think it, yeah, well, I'll find that. I don't want people to be like, what's he doing here? So let's get into the questions. I, I was a little nervous at first because we barely got any questions. And then they started coming in fast and furious towards the end, so I realized that uh, I guess I did give people enough time. So this one came in a long time ago, and I think we talked about this off the air, you and I, but uh, it comes from Lawrence Manzo. Uh, we'll use his full name because if they contact me on Facebook, I'll just use their name. Um and uh, he says, uh, according to my calendar, Ruck's giving is nearly upon us. Well, Lawrence, it has arrived tonight. So here is your question. He wants to know uh, about the Bionic Man versus Bigfoot. He says it's never <laughs> come up in the interviews, yeah. And uh, he says it came out in 77, had an incredible resonance with real events. First, Bigfoot is pals with the ETs, and also the ETs are meddling with our nuclear program, and they have underground bases and abduct people, too. So uh, he wonders if I'm too young to remember it, which I was. Uh, but he bets that you have a lot to say about it. And uh, then he talks about how they used to be on YouTube, but uh, now they can find it on Hulu. So please look into this and be sure to ask old Rux what he thinks. So uh, what is all that about, Bruce? Because this is, this is way before my time. Well, I do and don't have a whole lot to say about it. I remember that very well. Uh, I didn't catch up with uh, the $6 million man mostly until later sci-fi reruns. Uh, it wasn't one of my favorite shows. I did tune into it every now and then in the 70s. Mostly in the 70s and the 80s, I was on stage practically every night of my life. I was acting all the time. So I didn't get to see that much TV. And a lot of it I had to um, get in reruns down the line. <coughs> the whole Bigfoot thing, I remember, but I don't remember all the details. Uh, the mere fact, the, the stuff that you're bringing up is calling it back to mind. Yeah. Uh, the, the fact that there are abductions and that they're doing sabotage and all that other kind of thing. I remember that Bigfoot was hiding in a cave, and Steve Austin had to. He ended up fighting Bigfoot. He ends up becoming good friends with Bigfoot. 
which has become a, a running joke on the Venture Brothers. If you ever see that show on Adult Swim, it's the funniest thing they've got on. Uh, so it, it, he was a running character. They actually had more than one Bigfoot episode. Uh, I think in one of those, Bigfoot got programmed to fight Steve Austin because he's kind of semi-robotic, as I recall. Uh, he had implants, or he might even have had some bionic limbs himself. At, at this point, I really don't remember. It's been decades. Was the Bigfoot Andre the Giant or no? I don't remember that. He easily could have been. Okay. Uh, he was under so much makeup, I really couldn't tell you. Uh, it was a pretty good Sasquatch costume as far as that goes. Uh, I do remember that the ETs kept him in a cave and that Steve Austin met the ETs that way. And he, he basically found out about Bigfoot and kept Bigfoot secret because uh, he didn't want government interference with him or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so he was, in a sense, kind of in collusion with the aliens and with Bigfoot. I do remember that much. Huh. Uh, and I remember that it was a, a sort of a running thing. I don't remember how many episodes they had with Bigfoot, but they had uh, at least a couple of them, as I recall. Uh, I think they did have like a two-parter, and I think there was one other one. But I don't remember the details on them. Uh, all the stuff that you're bringing up, I only remember that because you're bringing it up. Yeah. Well, it was 1977, I mean. Right. I'm surprised they haven't tried to remake that yet, but give it time, I guess, right? Give it time. They they did try to um, redo The Bionic Woman. As a matter of fact, I was enjoying that. Uh, but I it wasn't uh, friendly with my schedule, with my work schedule, so I only got to see it every now and then, and by the time I got around to watching it, they'd already canceled it. Yeah. Yeah, it says here, uh, looking up a little bit, it says the uh, the Bigfoot was a was a robot created by the aliens. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I thought he was either bionic himself or had mechanical parts or something like that. Yeah, uh, I know that he was in league with uh, with the aliens. We'll put it that way. It says he was constructed by the alien Shalon in imitation of a lower life form from their alien homeworld. So, using a technology called niosynthetics. So we're really getting deep into the. Uh, <laughs> cool. The canon of Six Million Dollar Man. And for the folks who I don't want to leave them hanging if they have OCD like me, it says here the uh, the the Thanksgiving rules are the fourth Thursday in November. I always thought it was the third, but apparently it's the fourth, and that's why it's uh, only. That makes sense. We only had four this month, right? And it usually falls on the in the third week. Uh, I see. Yeah, because there are usually otherwise uh, five somehow. Okay, that makes sense. See that this is this is why it's the Thanksgiving special. We get to the bottom of these things. There you go. Um, now, since six million dollar man is way out of my range, so I, hopefully Lawrence was uh, happy with that. Do you think? I think also let's just revisit it a little bit. Do you think? Um, do you think there was any sort of agenda behind that, or just sort of they just threw all these interesting paranormal uh, fiefdoms of the Bigfoot, the aliens, the uh, the Bionic Man? Just kind of threw them all together and had them interact. You don't, do you think there was any sort of like message behind all that, or just that, hey, uh, you know, it's all connected somehow? Six of one, half a dozen of another. That was a Glenn Larson show, as I recall. Uh, I don't think Lars, I don't think Larson was actually consciously in the project at all, and I don't think a lot of the producers or directors were. Uh, they just got the story ideas thrown at them. Someone in the production chain was in on the joke and, and seeding stuff out there. Most of them were just. You know, contractors doing their jobs for the day, and it was just one more weird sci-fi story for them. They didn't care. Yeah. So there could have been a conscious agenda behind that. Uh, not really sure. I do think there was in similar shows like Wonder Woman. They had several episodes with ETs, and not infrequently they fit within the um, exactly what I write about. Uh, they had a, a running character who was kind of Klaatu from Day the Earth Stood Still, who was a good friend of Diana Prince. 
and literally did lay the smack down on the UN, basically, kind of visit Earth and said, look, you guys got to get your act together or we got to wipe you out. Uh, and they, he was a running character. I think they had three different episodes with him. Weird. Interesting. Okay. Um, like I said, this is outside of my realm completely, so I don't have much to add to the $6 million man conversation. So we'll, we're going to move to the next question. How's that sound? Sure. All right. I see. I'm, I'm have to look, I have to do the digital version of cutting the turkey here, folks. So I have to, you know, make sure the cranberry sauce gets passed around. There you go. I've only got a handful more Thanksgiving uh, puns and, and metaphors to use. Don't worry. I'm almost through them all, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll come up with more. There you go. Uh, Joey Herbs asks, any more MIB encounters? Happily, no. Uh, that all pretty much stopped right with 9-11. They had bigger fish to fry, and uh, not that I'm happy about 9-11, but I'm at least happy about the result that I'm very low on their totem pole anymore. Uh, they don't really need to keep close observation on me. They didn't need to before. I don't yeah. know why they did. Uh, but I'm I'm not a, t- a high priority at all. I'm a kind of guy that they can easily keep track of, you know. I, I keep a very low profile in the first place, and when I do appear publicly someplace like here, they they can have somebody listening. It's not a big deal. And for that matter, if they really wanted to listen in on my conversations when I'm out for coffee or what have you, they've always been able to do that. Uh, so they may still be around in some form or another, but I haven't noticed them yeah. since 9-11. That's good. Well, that makes sense in a way because uh, from what we talked about, it sounds like they were – they weren't aliens or anything. They were, were just dudes at the behest of the government. So no, I can, they're goons. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine <laughs> that some... The goon squad. Yeah. Then 9-11 happened, and they were like, what the hell are you doing? Get back from Colorado, you idiot. Uh, you know, we got a we got a serious issue on our hands. Leave, leave yeah, the rock We've actually got bullets flying around. We, we can't be peddling with bullshit like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you... Now, I, I... What do you think raised their ire so much that you were doing good research on the alien... You know, I know what raised their ire so much. They told me. Uh, I understand them. We we've had frank conversations. Let's just put it that way. Uh, their main concern, I think, is that they don't want anyone doing this kind of research to be trying to create a religion like Scientology mm. or panicking anybody. I think that's their their number one concern. Interesting. Since neither of those things was in my purview at all. I had no intention of trying to create any kind of religion. And uh, I certainly didn't want to panic anybody. If anything, I was trying to dispel any fears that people might have. Uh, the joke on that is that if anyone puts out scare stories, it's the government itself. But the government's left hand doesn't know what its right is doing, and they've got people working across purposes. So uh, if anything, I, I think I actually am kind of helpful to them. Their first book, uh, my first book they weren't happy about, but... Uh, there were a lot of people in the intelligence community that wanted to be talking about the same stuff themselves. They just can't because of their security oaths. Mm. So I've actually got some fans in uh, government circles. I don't know who they are. I mean, I can't name them. I couldn't look them up or give them a phone call, but I know that they're there. And occasionally they do make themselves known. The second book was an entirely different can of worms. They were really, really ticked off about that one. Hmm. Uh, but that's because it was getting into MK Ultra and the Kennedy assassination and all the stuff that they, they really get bent out of shape about. The second book's amazing. Um, I've only leafed through the first book. I need to give a dedicated... Uh, someday we'll do another Rux trilogy to that book. But the second book, I remember the introduction to the second book. I had jury duty. This is how well I remember the book, actually. Like I remember where I was when I was reading it. And I was engrossed in... You know how they make you wait 
in jury duty for like a long time till they decide to let you in if they're going to use you or not. That's the oh, situation yeah. I was in. And I had Hollywood versus the Aliens with me, and I read a good chunk of the intro there. And the introduction's huge. It's like its own little book in and of itself. It's amazing. Yeah, a friend of mine criticized me for that, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell him he's wrong. He's wrong. The intro is amazing. It sets the groundwork for everything that comes in the book and is is incredibly detailed to the point where I remember when we were doing the interview, I was like, I need to just spend a long time on the intro because there's so many interesting points in there. I feel like that's probably uh, a summation almost of what's in Architects of the Underworld, right? Largely, yeah. I had a lot of new material in that, uh, going back to the World War II stuff especially, uh, with the Nazis and the Allies and their various intelligence circles and what they were picking up. So there was quite a bit of new material in it, but it was largely a summary of the first book also. Now, do these, when they... When you have these frank conversations, they they don't want you to start a religion or scare people. Is that kind of what they just spell it out pretty much for you? And you're like, listen, I'm not. They don't believe you, or they just kind of still want to keep an eye on you? I got this from the guy that threatened me. Ah, okay. Uh, After threatening me and after exchanging quips, uh, and we sort of settled down a little bit, uh, he he just spelled everything out for me. Said, look, you know, this is where everyone's coming from. Uh, there are a lot of people that aren't going to be happy about what you're writing about. And at which point, I just kind of laughed and said, "What? I'm not going to get my invitation to the Bush family Christmas dinner this year." And I was yeah. so looking forward to that. <laughs> uh, I was expecting it, but I can't believe you're not going to have me. So yeah, I knew there were some people that were going to be pissed off about it. Um, but yeah, they just spelled everything out pretty much that that bluntly. We ended up talking for I'd say a good half hour after he threatened me. Uh, and then we had what I would call a decent conversation or a substantial conversation. Uh, they should lead off with that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what the hell is with you people? Uh, you can't have a conversation with someone until you threaten them? What? And, you know, just, here, buy me a fucking piece of pie. Let's have a cup of coffee and relax, okay? <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's a, it's good. It's in keeping with the holiday. Give, just give the man some pie. That's all. We'll settle yeah. down. Yeah, well, it is kind of weird. You wonder what they're thinking there. Uh, it's like insecurity on their part. I presume no, but also maybe they're... Actually, just, I, I think they just wanted to rattle me. Yeah. They want you to kind of go home and just put it all down, and maybe then they don't have to, you know, do any work, any paperwork or anything. So, like, yeah, all right, we scared him. It's fine. Well, plainly, they never followed through with it. There was a guy, one of the later spy guys who came by, it was before 9-11, say probably a year before then. Uh, he started coming by another coffee shop that I hung out at, and I spotted him instantly. There was nothing uh, outward about the guy that would say, this guy's a spy. But the second he came walking in the door, I knew. And I even looked to one of the waiters there. They knew some of this stuff. And I said, you see that guy there? I said, yeah, watch. He's going to be at my table in, in a half hour. Watch. And he was. He was at my table in a half hour. <laughs> He came in, he sat down, he immediately asked the uh, different waiters and waitresses about me. He was was sitting across the restaurant from me, doesn't know me from Adam. He just comes down and sits down and starts asking questions about me immediately. And within 30 minutes, he's over at my table asking me about my books. I mean, I laughed at the guy. That's just weird. Yes, it is just weird. He didn't know, like, he didn't know you were in the, in the, in the place? Or was he trying to, like, tweak you out by having you? Well, in theory... In theory, but yeah. you know what makes sense in this? The guy came from Colorado Springs in the first place, which is you know a ninety-minute drive. So yeah, you just happen to drive ninety minutes to the one coffee shop in the entire state in Aurora that has the best coffee in the world. And it's the first time you've ever been here, but someone told you that. So you came down here, and out of the blue, you saw some guy sitting there and decided you'd ask him about who that guy is sitting there, as opposed to any other guy sitting around the restaurant. 
<laughs> and within 30 minutes, you're sitting at my table asking me about my books. No, you're not a spy. Of course not. Silly me. How could I possibly come to such an erroneous conclusion? He's just very curious about, about you. <laughs> well, I brought up, when we had a regular running conversation, he would come in periodically and we'd just chat. Uh, and at one point he asked me what my problem was with the government guys. And I said, look, you guys sat down and threatened me once. You know, and I, I spelled it out. I gave him the exact threats. He sat down and flipping threatened me. And this guy looked at me like, like, so what? He just said, well, they never followed through on it, did they? And I thought, yeah, you're right. They only threatened to throw acid in the old lady's face. They didn't actually do it, so that means they're good people, right? It's weird. Well, that's how nonchalant, I guess, they are about it. The guy's like, yeah, that's our policy, man. What's your what's your well, problem? You've never been threatened before? <laughs> yeah, that's just it. Like, what is it with you guys? <laughs> do they do nothing but read G.I. Joe comics? Maybe they're all like, have desk jobs and shit, so they're... You know, when they get a call, they're, they're, they're fighting over who gets to go harass you because otherwise they, you know, they have to look into someone who's, you know, making counterfeit money or something boring like that. Well, this guy, interestingly, he was Air Force. He, he didn't have an Air Force uniform on. He was a nerd. He was just wearing glasses and dressed pretty much like a basic nerd. I just knew he was a spy. I could tell it was something about the way he was standing or something. I just knew. Uh, this guy was an optometrist for the Air Force, actually. What? Yeah. Weird. It's... <sighs> At the same time he was bothering you, or before you got into all that? Oh, he was, that was his regular day job. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who contacted him and said, hey, you know, you might want to go check this guy out. Just, you know, whatever information you might be able to bring back, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't know what these guys do. I don't understand these guys at all. They're just weird. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I don't even know. I wouldn't even begin to speculate any further than that. I, I have no idea. We're just really into the realm of... Uh, me constructing alternative worlds for the optometrist guy, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just don't get these guys. Yeah. Um, okay, Hillbilly, who's also in the chat right now, uh, he, he sent in the question. He wants to know what you think, uh, he wants to know, do you think uh, the mainstream science slash archaeology community is hiding slash ignoring anomalous proof that we have had previous civilizations that rival or surpass what we currently possess? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty obvious uh, yes from you. Uh, what, I guess I read the question and I was thinking to myself when I read it. Um, let's change. Let's change positions a little bit. What? Let's say we're on the other side. We're we're the mainstream science slash archaeology community. Aside from I guess covering our own financial input and making sure we still have jobs and stuff like that, and we don't want to upset the apple cart and lose tenure and everything. Uh, what What's the motivation for mainstream science and archaeology to even keep all that a secret? Wouldn't it be better for us if we if we knew that we had a previous civilization that burned itself out, it would teach us a lesson to be more judicious with our weapons development and everything else? I mean, it would be better for the human race if we knew that they had a previous civilization like that. So what's the motivation for them to keep it a secret, do you think? Do you remember Planet of the Apes? Mm-hmm. Dr. Zaius. Absolutely. He up all the evidence that they find of the uh, previous human civilization that was more advanced than the apes. And as soon as he finds it, and as soon as Taylor's gone, he blows it up. And the younger guy looks at him and says, Dr. Zayas, what about the future? And Zayas says, I just saved it for you. <laughs> all right, yeah. See, so now put that into the context of what we're talking about, though. So you think that they... I, I'm confused though, because even in that story, it's the human race blew, 
blew themselves up. So wouldn't wouldn't he want the apes to know that that the possibility exists that we could rise to the level that we destroy ourselves, so we better be careful? When they got later into the film series, which when I first saw them, I didn't find as compelling as I do now, they fit very, very much into exactly what I'm talking about. You get into the later films, and it turns out that the apes themselves were manufactured by human beings in the first place. Hmm. They owed their existence. They were a slave race for the advanced humans in antiquity. Almost a Sitchin-esque story. Yes. They're going exactly with the Middle Eastern tablet stories of the human race having been created as slaves for the gods in order to take care of their needs. They eventually had a rebellion. They overthrew humankind, uh, and mankind wiped itself out. Now, mankind, they got into this even in the second movie. They got a little bit squirrely with it, a little bit too sci-fi, but the idea was still sound. There are some of the apes that have figured out that there are still human beings alive living underground in the caves. Yeah. And they're scared to death of them. They mount a military expedition to go and try and take them out. The reason that they're so scared of them is because they are more advanced. And in the time that they've been gone, they've actually developed their their psi powers, so they're now more psychic. That got a little bit squirrely. But they've also got an atomic bomb down there, which is what Taylor ends up blowing up uh, at the end of the second movie. They're just terrified of the, the forerunners. And even in later movies after that, uh, they still had uh, um, stories where one of the apes would figure out, say, look, there are human beings down there, and they find the advanced civilization. They haven't found the human beings yet, but they're afraid to find them. Yeah. They know they're there. Uh, and I very much think that that's what's been going on with the government for a long period of time. It doesn't matter who they were. The mere fact that they are there frightens them. Hmm. That makes sense. They don't want, yeah. They're afraid to even acknowledge. It's like a boogeyman. Yes, it's the boogeyman. Because they could still be around. They don't know. Yeah. That's spooky. That's why I think everyone's so scared of Mars. They're still there. So they don't want, yeah. They do kind of treat the planet with kid gloves in a way. You'd think that they'd be able to... I don't know. I've gotten into this with other guests before. and I think I may have even with you. It's very frustrating that the United States has dropped the ball so badly on space exploration. We should We should already be kind of coming and going from there and have developed something by now. Wouldn't that be nice? Wow, would I love that. Yeah. I dearly, dearly hope with everything in me that Star Trek is our future. I do not believe that we will ever reach that point, but I dearly hope that we do. Well, well, you're, are you still on board with the moon hoax, though? Cause it, you know. Yes. All right. I've actually done a lot of research into oh, that. Oh, yeah, we talked about that, I think, last year, and people got all excited, and that movie came out that you were talking about at the time, Room... Room 237, I just yeah. saw that. Okay. They, they finally released it, and I just saw it. Uh, the movie itself was kind of a disappointment. There are much, much better uh, movies on YouTube that run for like an hour and 20, hour 25 minutes. Um, if I could think of one off the top of my head, I would recommend it. Uh, there, there are several there. I remember watching one through that went into much more detail than Room 237 did. And the funny thing about that is once you know the joke, you spot things that everyone else has missed. Uh, my favorite one... Uh, Widener, the guy who really first opened the door on this, Jay Widener, yeah. uh, had caught that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy also means A11 work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Uh, one thing that hadn't been noticed was how many letters are in that sentence. There are 33, or three times A11. And the reason that becomes interesting is that there's a coded question at the very end in the photograph, which has to do with the numbers. That's far too complex for me to get into. I don't remember it all. 
But it came down to a question of whether uh, Kubrick was saying that he had been involved in two or three different Apollo 11 um, frauds. Uh, my answer is three because of the uh, 33 letters in All Work and No Play. Huh. So three fake moon landings, you mean? Yeah. Interesting. He filmed three of them. Wow. That's my guess. Yeah. Uh, he put all kinds of different codes into that movie, and they very much fit in with the Apollo 11 business. Uh, the reason that movie stinks as bad as it does is because he wasn't making a movie of of uh, Stephen King's The Shining. He was filming his own confession. Hmm. You mean, oh, so you don't like The Shining, the movie? Is what you're saying? It's terrible. Oh, I think it's a good movie. I'm surprised you don't like it. It That's is a little, it, it has its issues, but... Well, it's got about the ugliest production design I've ever seen in a movie, first off. The colors are hideous. Uh, the pace is terrible. Uh, the it, pace is what I was thinking of. It's like it's like watching paint dry. Yeah, exactly. It, it's just a dreadful movie. When we left that movie, we were all really excited when it first came out. I remember this very well. We had a party the night before. We did a bad movie night the night before The Shining, and about 20 or 30 of us got together. We were watching just all kinds of movies. Uh, we did a sleepover, and we were going to get up way early in the morning and get in line. We ended up, I think, like 30th in line or something like that. And a friend of mine had actually gone ahead into Wyoming, where they were doing a uh, showing the night before. He drove all the way out to Wyoming just to see this. This is how excited we were about Kubrick doing this. Wow. He came back, gave me a phone call, met with me privately, and said, we can't tell everyone this. <laughs> this movie is terrible. And he was describing it to me, and it just sounded awful. And I agreed that we couldn't, you know, be the killjoy, so we just kind of pretended that we didn't know. And sure enough, we went in the next day. Everyone left that theater. I don't mean just us. I mean everybody was leaving, hiding their faces. Uh, they were just kind of, you know, and everyone standing behind them getting ready for the next show. How was it? It was really cool. It was awful. Nobody liked that movie. It was getting rave reviews all the hell over the place, but nobody liked it. Yeah. <laughs> Man. And anyone who did liked it because they said it was the funniest movie they'd ever seen. They thought it was a comedy. Odd. See, it's hard for me to put myself in the place of you guys being so excited for the movie, man. I understand that, but it's like a whole different era, so it's it's odd, you know. I can't oh, imagine. Yeah. You see these uh, classic I mean, movies that they've changed the the opinions have changed so so much over the years. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and there are people that like the movie, and I'm not dissing them. People like what they like, you know, and for whatever reason. Uh, it just aesthetically, I thought it was a dreadful movie. It just had the worst aesthetics I've seen in a movie in many, many years. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Well, that makes sense, because I haven't gone back and really watched it since the first time I saw it. It's not the kind of movie I see on TV where I'm like, i got to watch more of this. This is great. I have gone back and watched that movie so many times now that I want to kill myself. But I've been doing it because I've been looking for the codes. Well, that yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What's the best if we were going to direct people to find out more about this? More Weedner, send send them to to check out Weedner's stuff, or is it someone else who's doing additional work there on that? Weidner or Weedner, whichever it is, is yeah, the guy who opened the doors on all of this, and he goes into great detail. I wish he would write a book. Uh, he goes into great detail not only on The Shining but on all of Kubrick's other movies. Uh, in fact, he really zeroes in obviously on 2001 and the um, the cinema trickery that was taking place on that, and he shows how it was used in the uh, moon hoax. Uh, I mean, you, he shows you the demarcation line for his um, particular rear screen projection. Yeah, I think I've seen the uh, part of uh, his movie. They have a fantastic intro song. It's like this weird 
under the Masonic Moon song. People, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you remember that song or not. It's crazy. No, but it sounds cool. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, I've listened to it like a million times. It's really short, but it's creepy. It's creepy as all get out. Um, I'll send you, send you a link to it. I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. Oh, yeah. I probably have. I'm just I'm blanking. Yeah. But anyway, he shows the demarcation line on the screen uh, and how he uses it to create the vista in 2001. And then he shows you the moonshots. And sure enough, in all the moonshots, you can see the demarcation line. There's always going to be that demarcation line. They do what they can to disguise it, but you can still see it. So, yeah, he actually provides a lot of uh, physical photographic evidence to go along with all of his theories. I really wish he would write a book on all of this. He's written a series of articles, and uh, I I think he would just do everyone a favor if he wrote a big book on it. Yeah, I I, I don't know. The movie, he, I guess you have to go with the movie, right? Well, he hasn't put out the uh, the books yet, so I'm right. not sure what he's waiting for on that. But I, I, I've been meaning to get him on the show to talk about it because we, we keep you and I keep talking about this theory. So I, I need oh yeah, to talk to that, him that's one I would definitely want to listen to. Widener's a guy I'd like to talk to. Well, it's pretty remarkable stuff. Now, is he the focus of the room? Obviously, the the room two twenty three is a bunch of different theories. But is it's he a bunch the, of different theories. The, they barely touch Widener's stuff. Okay, but he's the guy they use, right? Well, they do interview him. Uh, He's actually late in the movie. They do interview him, and he probably gets about five minutes. Uh, He does bring up, I would say, the primary points, but just the tip of the iceberg. He doesn't get to get in any real detail at all. Uh, The other stuff that's in that movie, I found it kind of disappointing overall. It is still kind of interesting just for the other theories and and what they're talking about. there was a lot of speculation on Holocaust imagery in that movie, and uh, like Native American thing that. too, right? Native American, especially, right? Uh, that was kind of hard to miss. I noticed the Calumet uh, brand with the um, Indian headdress and all of that thing that was constantly popping up, and the different Indian artwork in the hotel and all of that, and they even bring it up in the script. So, yeah, I'm sure that there are other layers to that movie. Uh, I just hate Kubrick for throwing layers in that don't make sense, but. Uh, Kubrick was the kind of guy that just liked jacking off in front of people. He liked proving to everyone that he was smarter than they were. And uh, he often did that at his audience's expense. Now, how confident are you that... Because I I feel like the message of Room 223, I haven't seen it, but part of how I interpret it just from reading the reviews and stuff is that there's all these different things you can see in the movie... Um, but the people are putting them in there themselves uh, through interpretation. What, I mean, how far are you into that idea? Is it possible that all this stuff is just stuff that people have superimposed onto the movie based on their, what they're looking for, or you, you actually Some think the yes. stuff really works? As Some far of as it, yes. Understand. The Apollo stuff works. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of detail on that. That's what I mean. Like There are much better movies on YouTube hmm. that go into great detail on this uh, with the photographic evidence and do a tremendous job. Uh, I watched one for an hour and 20 minutes one night that hit pretty much every point. And the only thing that I'd caught that it had missed was the 33 letters in, in All Work and No Play Makes Jack a Dull Boy. Yeah. Uh, I think there was, no, there was one other thing that we'd caught that they'd missed. Now I can't remember what it was. Uh, everything else, we'd caught some stuff once we understood Widener's basic theory. A friend of mine who's really, really into Kubrick um, had no problem buying this when I first brought it up to him. And uh, he did a hell of a lot of homework on it, and so did I. And we found things that Widener had, at that point, missed. Now, he's probably caught them by now. Yeah. Uh, and I know other people have, because I've seen stuff on YouTube. They've also caught a hell of a lot of stuff that I've missed. They've caught more stuff that I missed than I've caught that they missed. Uh, the point is, like I say, once you know the joke, 
it leaps out at you. You kind of can't miss it. Well, here's an interesting twist on all this. I feel like we covered uh, Hillbilly's question pretty good. Hillbilly, you're in the chat, so speak up if you're not happy with the uh, with the coverage of your question. But uh, I want to stay on this moon hoax idea because we just had the JFK assassination anniversary. Uh, God help us. Yes, on Friday. <laughs> They're still insisting Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy. It's amazing. The coverage was amazing. Um, just how I don't even know. How, how misled people are, or, or just how overbearing the, the misleading is, in a way. But uh, it's it's clear we're probably almost never going to figure out or get told what happened with JFK, unless it's like another 50 years from now. You know, by the time you you, know what? you and I are long gone, it'll be it'll it, be. It was spelled out decades ago. Uh, Oliver Stone basically hit all of the major points. He got it just about nailed down. Uh, if you've done a lot of research into this, and God knows I have, I have shelves of books on this subject. Uh, it's a whole vocabulary. If you want to get into the Kennedy assassination, you have to memorize all the names, dates, places. You have to be ready to present a court case. You have to go at it like a lawyer. It's exactly like researching UFOs. You've got to memorize all the all the stuff, and there's a lot of stuff to memorize. But once you have it down, and once you chase it down, it's really not that hard to figure out. It was a mafia CIA job, and everyone wanted him dead, so everyone made it as easy as possible. And they probably all agreed not to rock the boat because there wasn't really anyone championing him, probably unless, except for his brother, who then was also subsequently killed. There you go. So it does it it, it does make you know it all adds up in a way. I guess the, like the the to circle back to the question, it's like maybe we may never even find this out. To tie it into the moon hoax part of it all, do you think we're ever gonna find out that if, if it was a moon hoax, we're going on that start? Do you think it'll ever be revealed, or they'll somehow just figure out a way to get to the moon and pretend like they just got a fret? You know, we're going to take another swing at this moon thing, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I'll tell you what's funny. They practically admit it every time they open their mouths and talk about going to the moon again. When Bush first brought up saying, we we can get to the moon in 20 years, I'm just laughing. They say, wait a second, didn't we go to the moon? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Back in 1969, what did we do, lose the technology? It only took us like 10 years to do it then. But you're saying it would take us 20 years to do it now. What are you actually saying here? And then Obama just killed the whole program. He came in and said, we can't do this, and killed the whole program. Here's one of my problems with the moon hoax theory, is that uh, wouldn't some of these private space ventures... Isn't it going to? Are we going to reach a point where the private space ventures are going to have to blow the whistle on the moon hoax? In a sense, where they're like, "Listen, we can't get out of the the, the Kyber belts, so the jig is up. We can't, you know." Or is there just so much money involved and everything else that they'll keep their mouths shut for a little while longer too? Six of one, half a dozen of another. It's kind of the Capricorn one thing. It's like, look, we need to keep our funding going. We really can't do this, and it's important that other people believe we can do this. Hmm. So just buy into it, you know, play the lie. Makes sense. So, yeah, I think some of them will probably do that. There might be some uh, some possible whistleblowers, what have you. Uh, if you follow my theory or Widener's theory, uh, Kubrick actually was blowing the whistle on it, saying, you know what? <laughs> yeah. But we need a better revelation than a hidden message in a, you know, 40-year-old movie. Yeah, he just would have gotten <laughs> the ball rolling. Yeah. He would have done his part to expose that down the line. Hmm. I do think it will come out somewhere down the line, but God knows when or how. Yeah. It, it It's, like I said, it's kind of a catch-22. If it, if it really was a moon hoax and they can't get to the moon, then it will have to come out eventually. But I could also see, you know, we're pretty old now. I, I was young when I started this, 
<laughs> but I'm not anymore. And uh, I've known you for about six years, so you've grown older. And they don't even have, like, the technology to do too much with the private space just yet anyway. It costs a lot of money just to do the most minimal things. I think the thing is, like, oh, we'll take you up off the planet and circle around the planet a few times for a quarter million bucks. They could probably <laughs> they could stretch that out for, like, another 15 or 20 years. And by then, I'll be, you know, I'll be 50, almost 60 or something, so... God only knows. At that point, I won't even care anymore, and they just could just keep just keep it like that for a long time until another generation comes along. Well, I'll tell you what floors me. Uh, we could be making regular round trips to the moon using shuttles. Uh, I remember I kind of came up with a proposal for how that could be done. It was theoretical, but sure enough, there was a NASA astronaut I can't remember his name now uh, who wrote a novel using the exact same theory that I was talking about with a couple of extra additions to it. And I said, good, I know that the other guys are thinking the same thing that I'm thinking. This could be done, provided certain elements were in place. The biggest problem actually would be getting past the Van Allen belt. If you can get past the Van Allen belt, and it's possible we can. Yeah, I call it the Kyber belt. I'm an idiot. Yeah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone really keeps track of these things. They're not using it in a daily vocabulary, so of course you're going to lose track of it. Uh, in any event, if you could deal with the radiation of that, and if you could deal with the radiation of the moon itself, uh, provided we have nuclear propulsion, and NASA has admitted that we have nuclear propulsion, even though you'll still find textbooks saying that we don't. <laughs> but yeah. it's been openly admitted. They said they were using it at the end of the Apollo missions. Okay, fine. So if we have nuclear propulsion, and if there is water on the moon, and we know that there is water on the moon, okay, well, if we have those two things, then in theory, there is no reason that with... Uh, refueling stations, and uh, if you could set up a permanent base of operations on the moon, that you couldn't just make regular round trips to the moon like making a round trip to Cairo. Yeah. We could have been doing that since 1972. I don't know that we have been. Uh, in fact, we probably haven't. But uh, we could. I mean, if we really wanted to, that's that's the route that I would go. Mm. Uh, I'm getting a little fuzz on you, so if you're outside... Uh... Yeah, I'll take care of that in just a second. I was noticing it, too. <laughs> it's just acting up on me. Sorry about that. It's all right. It's all right. I figured I'd mention it, though, so uh, I don't get emails uh, down the line. <laughs> yeah, I'll fix it. I'm, I'm just smoking a cigarette out on the back porch, guys. No worries. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll tackle the next question here uh, while, while you take care of that. It comes from Spencer James, and he wants to know... Uh, he says, I'd love to know if the Ruxinator thinks that the maths of the ancient societies are as useful on the subatomic scale as they are for the celestial. Because I reckon if EBEs came here from somewhere else, they would have to have had at least mastered subatomic physics and maybe whatever comes after that layer of matter. Gravity, electromagnetism, magic, haha, whatever it is, still seems a long way off whichever way you cut it. So that's the question from Spencer James. I think he's trying to say if if the ancient societies could do things like make the pyramids using fancy stuff and advanced science, then presumably they could uh, extrapolate that and move it on to a much larger scale, a uh, macro scale, if you will. I think that's kind of what he's saying. Yes, this is actually an excellent question. Uh, what this is getting down to is what are the limits of technology and what are the limits of technology that ET has? Uh when I was going into my theories, with Mars specifically, and with the Moon as a matter of fact, uh, the idea is that the technology that we can see the ancients sh 
showing us that they were using, if you, if you accept that interpretation, and I do, they're using three-stage rockets, much like we did with the Apollo missions. Uh, they didn't appear to have any kind of technology that would take them further than the next planet, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, they may have had more advanced technology. I don't know. But they also seem to have been using three-stage rockets. They were doing landings in the ocean, the same way that we do with nose cones. Um, we can see our Apollo program was basically based on what these guys were doing. Hmm. I think that's where we got the idea. Uh, so whether they were more advanced than that at that time, I don't know. Sorry about this fuzz. I'm trying to take care of it now. It's okay. Um, it's Thanksgiving. They... We have a patient audience tonight. Yeah, don't even worry. Fortunately. About it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're already they're already hopped up on eggnog and God knows what. So they're all good. There you go. I think I'm settled down now. It doesn't seem to bother me in this room. I don't know why. <laughs> so you think that the that the original space program was borrowing from the ancient aliens. Um, yes. I don't want to interrupt the point, so but I have a follow-up question to that. But go ahead. Yes, in fact, I'm certain that that's where we got the A-bomb, too. Uh, there were notes from um, Robert Oppenheimer. Robert Oppenheimer in interviews said that we basically got it from the ancients. And uh, you can also find notes in FDR's uh, notebooks where he was saying the same thing. So said that we resurrected an ancient technology, I think, were the words he used. Yeah. The follow-up question, I guess, is that if the if the ancients were using the three-stage rockets, though, based on what we know about modern UFOs, that they clearly have advanced past the three-stage rockets because they're doing things that that are far beyond what it looks like a combustible engine can do, as far as we know. And they very much appear to have had flying saucers too, at least back in the uh, 18th dynasty. <laughs> Uh, Tutmosis III recorded seeing flying shields in the sky and said he was actually taken up in one. Uh, the, the traditional Egyptologists would tell you that that was just typical hagiography of any of the pharaohs, and there was a certain amount of that that went on. But I think he was telling the truth. I think he and his court saw flying saucers, and he went up in one, and he established a mystery school afterward. He was really impressed. Uh, so, yeah, I think they had flying saucer technology as well. Hmm. But that wouldn't be interplanetary, or probably would not be interplanetary. Now, the real question is this. Did they, at some time, or have they developed since, a much more advanced technology, something like wormhole travel or something of that nature? I really don't know. I don't think anyone can actually answer that question. In other words, did they ever become interstellar? Hmm. Did they actually have left the solar system and gone someplace else? That might have been so, where they went. Yes, that might be where they went. Uh, I do believe that's entirely possible. We just don't have any way of knowing. Uh, and what that question really gets down to is, what are the limits of technology? I have a personal belief, and I have no way of proving or disproving this, but I believe that there is an eventual ceiling of technology. I mean, there's a limit. We, we reach an end point. You've found about as much technology as there is to find, and you're not going to find anything more. Yeah. Uh, presumably, these guys have reached that point. Uh, whether or not interstellar travel is possible, whether or not there are wormholes that can be navigated, uh, any of that stuff, any of our good Star Trek questions, those are the real questions. What are the limits of technology? What what limits have they reached, and what limits can we reach? How close are we? So, yeah, that, I think that's actually an excellent question, and I don't have a solid answer to that. That's the best answer I can give. Yeah, it makes sense that we would... The combustible engine, the three-stage rocket, makes sense that we could kind of be able to eventually copy that. And it took us, what, a couple thousand years, theoretically, to pick that 
technology up. So we may not just be ready to master the flying saucer part of it all. Right. I'm sure we're working on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a given. That's a given. Um, I, okay, okay. I'm thinking here, I'm just looking at the, uh, sometimes I pause a little bit here as we move on because I'm just double-checking on the question to make sure we covered it. But I, th- I think we did. I think, uh, I, I presume that they have uh, moved on to something else, but God knows what, and it's hard for us to really uh, speculate on. We can see they're more advanced than we are. We just don't know how much more advanced. Well, I'm surprised. I, I, I know what you're talking about because the evidence we have is these three-stage rockets, but I always imagine them more advanced uh, back in the day. Well, yeah, they've had three and a half thousand years since then. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine they've, they've come up with something. Yeah. Uh, Amal, Amal Suntha Splendora. That's the next uh, writer. She, I'm going to presume that's a lady's name. I think cool I saw, name. Yeah, I think I saw her picture on uh, Facebook. Amal uh, Amal, Amal Suna. I can't even do it again now. I, I, I got it right the first time. I should have quit while I was ahead. Hold on, I got, I got my computer up. I might be able to find it. <laughs> it's well, it's on Facebook, so I don't know. You're not you're not a denizen of uh, of the book of the faces. Uh, Amala Suntha. There we go. Splendora wants to know: Have you seen the Phantasm movies? And if yes. so, could you comment on them, please? Yes, uh, Phantasm is one of those few things that uh, I didn't get everything in Hollywood versus the Aliens, and I was aware that I would probably miss something. I missed like two or three things have come up over the years. I said, oh yeah, I probably should have mentioned that. Uh, I didn't mention Third Rock from the Sun at any point, and that was on TV at the time. I hadn't seen it at that point. Um, Phantasm is one of those things that I just kind of forgot to mention. Hmm. Uh, Phantasm deals with, uh, it, it's basically an alien abduction story or an alien invasion story, if you want to put it that way, uh, done as a, a weird low-budget horror movie, which is a great deal of fun, um, and it gets satirized quite a bit, uh, much to my delight, because it, it, there's a lot there to satirize. It was a very popular little cult movie, and still is, I would say. It was for decades, and they actually made sequels decades after. Um, so it, it did have kind of a lasting impact. I don't think there was much... Uh, that connected directly to any of the stuff that I'm writing about, other than the fact that they were actually making aliens the haunting supernatural factor in the movie. Hmm. But they were a lot of fun. This is a 90s thing? I never even heard about it. Oh, it was all the way back in the 70s. Oh, God, okay. Then I yeah, definitely this, this didn't is about way it. back. And again, I was on stage all the time. I didn't see Phantasm until probably 10 years after the thing had, had been out in the theaters. Uh, I caught it on a late-night TV showing one night, and I'd heard about it uh, when I saw it. I remember enjoying the hell out of it and thinking that it was much more complex than I expected. Um, it's a great deal of fun to go back and watch. It's a cult movie. Uh, it's def- it's available for rent. You can get it. Okay. And, uh, it's definitely fun to watch. I-, I would recommend it. It's a kick. All right. I'll have to check it out. I'll have to check it out. Kimberly says she saw it first run, so she's a hardcore uh, Phantasma fan. You just gave your age away, honey. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm up there too. I'm going to call out here. We haven't even. Well, who knows when we'll get to this question? We've got a question here from Jim uh, Lydica, who just posted it on Facebook a few seconds ago. So even though the show's been underway 50 minutes, he apparently thinks he can just get the questions in at any time. I'm afraid I'm going to get them in like tomorrow in the afternoon. <laughs> um, okay, so we we took care of Emil Emil Asunta's question. 
And uh, I did clear that up. That is a lady. That's what Facebook says. Cool name, Amalasuntha. Oh, wow, how'd you do that? You did that great. That was. Uh, I'm really good with words. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, now some of these some of these questions read like letters from prison, and this next one definitely does. This one's from Joe V, who is uh, actually the voice of Ben All of America, one of the longtime supporters and friends of the site who does the voiceover there at the beginning of the show. That's not me. Um, but Joe V has three questions. Apparently because he does the voiceover, he feels like he's entitled to additional questions. And not only does he have three questions, but as I said, these read like prison letters. These these seem like things that he's thought about far too long. Luckily, I sent this to you ahead of time because this is what made me email you the questions because I was like, you got to get a, get a load of this and if you need to, get a restraining order against this guy because <laughs> he's put way too much thought into this. But here's what he has to say now that I've busted on him uh, for a good minute and a half. He wants to know, at several points in his books, Sitchin stresses that he believes his research demonstrates that the Bible is not just a collection of fanciful stories. Although my own academic background, this is Joe V, gives me pause to accept his translations, it is notable that Sitchin's attempts to reconstruct the biblical text via Sumerian parallels, be they literary or linguistic, was a dominant school of interpretation from the 1950s until the end of the 1970s, at least. This is Just bear with me, folks. The Jesuit scholar Mitch Dahud was the most notable example of this. In this respect, there is nothing unusual about Sithin's me- methodology and his contention that he was demonstrating the deeper historical background to biblical material. However, I am curious as to what manner, if any, this impacted his view of Judaism. To the best of your knowledge, did Sitchin research ever impact his Judaism? Let me hit that one first. Okay. Not only did it impact his research, it, it was his research. If Sitchin had one big overriding flaw, it was that he could not see past Zionism in his interpretations. He forced all of his interpretations to fit into an Old Testament paradigm and could not see beyond that. The only time that he really got past that was in what I consider to be his best book, uh, The Lost Realms, where he was carrying it into um, the Mexican and Amerindian mythologies. Uh, That was some really good stuff. But even that, he was connecting to uh, its Middle Eastern theories. It's still a very good book. Uh, When I was in Egypt with Sitchin, Mm -hmm. there was a time that we were alone together at breakfast, and... He knew that I had read all of his books and that I was very familiar with all of his theories. And he asked me at one point which of the gods I thought was Yahweh. And to me, that was a very simple question. I said, well, that, that one's obvious. He said, really, who? And I said, it's Thoth. And a change took place in him, a visible change. His breathing increased. He got excited. Hmm. His face was flushing, and he, he just wanted me to keep talking. And uh, I was describing all the parallels between Thoth and uh, Ea and Enki. And as soon as I took it into the New Testament, as soon as I went into, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, which is straight out of the Egyptian. The Egyptians said the same thing about Thoth. But as soon as I took it into Christianity, he got furious. He got really upset. He did not pound the table, but he was just short of that. He got really animated and excited and kind of angry. And he said, you say that, you say that. I do not see that. You say that. And I lost him completely. Uh, The conversation didn't take place too much longer. He was just very visibly upset. 
because I had mentioned Christianity, not in the terms of a religion, but solely in the terms of its writings, exactly the same way as he was doing with Judaism and his texts. He simply could not see past Judaism, and as soon as he went past it, he he couldn't handle it. He just lost it. Yeah, that was the greatest flaw in all of his research. Huh. Interesting. Well, I'm I'm speechless by by both the story and the depth of this question because I feel like I have nothing to add. Anytime someone drops a Mitch Dahood reference, um, I'm completely out of my depth. Well, I think what he's getting at there, and uh, I think this is actually the predominant view still. Uh, I do believe that there are a lot of scholars who who contend that the biblical stories are not uh, made-up stories, but that there was actual history behind them. Hmm. I do have a comment on that. I believe that there were some historical occurrences. Whether they happened the way that they are written of in the Bible, I don't know. This kind of gets down to finding Troy, for instance. Uh, you'll find in all the archaeological textbooks, hey, Heinrich Schliemann found Troy. He just followed all the clues in the Iliad, and here it is. Okay, Heinrich Schliemann found a city where, in theory, Troy should be. That doesn't mean that the Trojan War actually took place there. That would be like some future archaeologist discovering that there had once been a New York City, therefore there was Spider-Man. Uh, it doesn't follow. Right. set stories in, in understandable settings that people are going to be able to relate to. It also doesn't mean it didn't happen, or it could have happened someplace else and the story could have been grafted onto that location. We don't know. Uh, the Bible is really, really rich material. There's a lot of stuff to get into there. And how much of it is actual archaeological fact, I couldn't tell you. But I do delve into that area and at least examine it in that light. And I think it's important to examine it in that light. It also has to be borne in mind that they, they could simply have been uh, moral fables that were grafted onto recognizable locations. Yeah. Okay. Well, what I like about talking to you is that you actually knew Sitchin. There's a lot of people that talk about Sitchin, talk around Sitchin, interpret Sitchin, but you actually had breakfast with Sitchin. Was he cool with you afterwards, or was it kind of like... Oh, no, we were chill? fine. Yeah. We were fine. I, just, I, I broadsided him with that, but what it really showed was that the man could not accept anything outside of Judaism. He just couldn't. Uh, he very much believed in everything that he wrote. He was very passionate about it, even when he was wrong. There were areas where he was demonstrably wrong, and I'm not faulting him there. Uh, the, the canvas that Sitchin was painting on, the amount of research that he was doing is really huge, so it would be pretty remarkable if he got absolutely everything correct. There are some areas where he's demonstrably wrong, for instance, in planetary mechanics. Uh, I don't have a problem with the theory of the extra planet in the solar system or, what, or some very large astronomical body, whatever it may be, yeah. that periodically comes in and probably destroyed the fifth planet. I have no problem with that at all. His mechanics as to how that happened wouldn't happen that way. But mm -hmm. he would insist, oh, yeah, it had to be this way. It came on a direct collision course, it intersected directly, and it hit there, and that's the orbit that it has. No, it wouldn't have that orbit. It would have the orbit of the comets, and that's probably why the comets have the orbit that they have, because the comets are the other half of the shattered planet that is the asteroid belt. They're the debris that got taken along with it and carried around past the sun. They go all the way around the sun and then back out into what we call the Oort cloud. That's the orbit of that planet, and that's why they have that, because they're the debris of that planet. Mm. That makes sense. The, an intercepted planet would not uh, do an ellipse between the fourth and the fifth planet. It just wouldn't do it. It would go around the sun. 
But that doesn't mean that it didn't destroy the fifth planet. If it came close enough to the fifth planet on its past that it caused some kind of gravitational problem, yeah, it could have exploded or imploded that planet one way or another. And we do see the evidence of that in the asteroid belt and, as far as I'm concerned, in the comets. That's one of the reasons that I buy that theory. But Sitchin's precise interpretation of that theory is incorrect. I just don't see that it could have done an, an intersecting orbit like that. Okay. But, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to quibble with him on that. He'd get upset with you. Interesting. Now, uh, to well, having known him, let me see. I'm going to hit a button here to turn uh, turn you up for me so I can hear you better. There we go. Having known him, I know. I think you. I think you. I don't think you'll have an answer for this in a way because I think you said he was kind of uh, closed off a little bit. But did he ever? You know, obviously he believed all this stuff, and if he thinks it's true, and obviously I think it has a lot of weight to it. So I'm not. I'm not uh, uh, downplaying it. But the point of the question is, if he believed this true. How did he feel about the fact that, yes, his stuff was wildly popular and you know, a lot of people were interested in it, but it, theoretically it should be like this Copernicus discovery, and it never really got the credit it deserved if, it, if it's true. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with all of those statements. How, did he ever sort of give any indication of like a frustration level with uh, that? He had it in perspective. Uh, I had the privilege of seeing Sitchin do translations on site. And uh, I know one of these questions brought up, uh, I think it just came up as a matter of fact, quibbling with uh, Sitchin's interpretations. I can see where anyone might quibble with Sitchin's interpretations. I also have to say that I've seen him do interpretations and um, I've seen him read ancient script on site with museum curators on hand to comment. And in one of those instances, we were at the Cairo Museum, and he showed us uh, a Ben-Ben stone, a replica of a Ben-Ben stone. We don't have a real one. The Ben-Ben stone is the object that brought the gods to Earth, which looks exactly like a nose cone. It's a, a conical object. It's got a square or rectangular doorway in it, and you'll see a god or a goddess sitting in that doorway. That's what brought the gods to Earth. It's a nose cone. That's why I'm going with the three-stage rocket business. Mm-hmm. Well, he did... Uh, a reading of the hieroglyphs off of Ben Ben Stone and some other object. He he named specifically what the object was that he wanted to see in the Cairo Museum, and the curator took him straight to it. And, you know, you pull the tarp off it and look at it, and there it is. It's in the storage room. And he read it on site for us. He interpreted it just on the spot. And he, I'm sure he had read it before and already had it in advance, but he did do his own interpretation is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And he read his interpretation, and when he was done, he looked over at the curator who was standing right there, and he said, would you agree that this correct interpretation? And the guy said, I, I might question one or two words, but yeah, it's it's allowable. It's an allowable interpretation. So I've seen him actually do his interpretations and, and seen curators you know, endorse them. Yeah. Uh, the man was a linguist, and he was a very, very good one. Uh, I do quibble with some of his facts and some of his details. Uh, his basic arguments I don't have a problem with. It's his details where he gets kind of messed up, and especially when he gets into the Zionism. Uh, he would frequently throw interpretations of which God was which that were way off base, and anyone could see that if they weren't trying to force it into a Zionist perspective, except him, because that's what he did. So this is all kind of a long, roundabout way of saying that uh, – he did recognize that uh, his ideas were unorthodox and that they were not going to be accepted, and he knew that. He told me privately, and he probably told some other people too, that there were a number of museum curators who he would not name, but I believe him completely, 
who privately acknowledged to him that they knew what he was writing about was true, but that they could not openly say so because they would have to rewrite all of the textbooks. They'd have to get everybody their degrees all over again. It would just upset the economy, and it would upset the status quo too much. Yeah. I believe that completely. I'm quite sure he was he was telling me the truth as far as that was concerned. So he had that in perspective, and he did not rec- he he did not believe that he was ever going to change the world's mind on anything. Um, so I don't think he was upset about that or even frustrated. I think he was actually more pleased to find that there were any people who listened to him and understood what he was saying. I see. Yeah, exactly. It's just that anyone was giving him a chance. Probably you. Yeah. You got to stick with that. You got to hang on to that because that's the. That's all you got, because the mainstream isn't giving you a chance anyway. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll move in. Uh, as I said, Joe V submitted three questions, but since he's the voiceover guy, we'll we'll allow it. And and I should mention the people in the chat are firing questions at me, but they they didn't follow the rules. They were supposed to submit them a long time ago, so they have to go to the very end of the line. Um, <laughs> That's fine. If we got time, we'll throw them in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, question two from Joe V. More on Sitchin. He says, uh, given what you know of Sitchin's work and given your own conclusions, do you have any particular opinion on certain well-known authors who frequently make cameos on a certain documentary series? He's talking about Agent Aliens here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's no need to dance around it. I'm already grinning. Okay. Alleging that they've found mystical stargates, hidden Gnostic codes, leading to hyper-spiritual states and other such things by quote-unquote decoding Sitchin's books. I should mention also just to just to keep on the the pylon on Jovi. He keeps spelling Sitchin's name wrong. He's spelling it Sitichin, which is his not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's gonna love listening to this tomorrow. Do we? He wants to know: Do they miss the point? These people who are finding things, uh, quote unquote, or would Sitchin himself have argued in favor of their conclusions? And then, thankfully, he says, "I guess what I'm trying to say is, Will Henry, a load of happy horseshit." Or is there something remotely credible about him? <laughs> I'm not sure which one Will, Will Henry is. Yeah, exactly. I don't know either, <laughs> to be honest. So. The one I usually laugh at is the Greek guy. Oh, with the hair, yeah. He's way the hell out there. I don't know what he's on. Um, that's a kind of an interesting grab bag of a show. Uh, I've caught a few episodes just in rerun. And uh, sometimes they hit on some interesting stuff, and other times they're just dicking around. Hmm. Uh, half the time when they're dicking around, you can tell that they're not really talking. Like, was Bigfoot an alien? Say, so, okay, look, you guys want to be serious or do you just want to fuck around here? And they just want to screw around. Yeah. Well, they have um, to. I'm sure they have a certain order of episodes to fill. And so they're up to right. like episode eight of season three. And they're like, how about is Loch Ness Monster an ancient robot that was left behind by aliens? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do so you want to be serious about this or do you want to just mess around? So I understand they got to fill time and fill a schedule and all that other kind of nonsense and what have you. And it's kind of fun if you don't have anything else to do at the time. Hmm. Uh, you can sit back and enjoy it and just kind of have a good laugh. And God knows if you're doing this kind of research, and especially if you're doing it seriously, it is fun to sit back and kind of poke fun at it now and then. Uh, it just kind of lets the steam off. Uh, anyway, uh, Will Henry, I couldn't say specifically because I'm not sure which one he is. Right. I'm, I'm honestly in the dark on that, but I, I want right. to be- yeah, let him get his say in. But yeah, he, I, the point I guess he's trying to make, and I'll sort of tighten this up because apparently he just wanted me to read a long thing. But what I think what he's saying is there are there are quote unquote experts out there who are reading the Sitchin books and finding additional stuff that either Sitchin 
uh, himself didn't realize was in there or covered, not when it's almost like covered up, because if anyone was not doing any covering up, I doubt it was Sitchin, because he was putting out this this really uh, fringe stuff. But maybe maybe Sitchin himself just discounted it and, and didn't think that. Uh, and what he's saying is, do you think there is additional stuff in there that maybe Sitchin didn't realize or d- didn't want to talk about or, or any other sort of reason? There are two parts to that question, and I'll answer both of them. Uh, could there be things in Sitchin that Sitchin missed? Yes, and, and I do believe there are things in Sitchin that he missed, largely because of his forced Zionist interpretations. Uh, there could also be any number of technological questions that he either did not perceive because they were not in his background, uh, or he just wasn't looking in that direction. So yeah, I consider the, that to be entirely possible. As to whether or not any of these people coming up with the various codes or what have you have actually come up with anything, uh, my guess, not knowing which ones specifically are being discussed, is probably it's just a load. Uh, they're just coming up with a lot of crap. Uh, there are there are even researchers in the field whom I respect, Richard Hoagland being one of them, who kind of go a little nutty. They go they they just kind of go off base a little now and then. Um, where Hoagland has done a lot of very good research, I think. Uh, he also comes up with these wild interpretations of how many different dimensions there are and different energy pathways and blah, 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 and states them as if they are fact, as if they're established in some way, hmm. based on uh, the Sidonia mathematics, as he likes to put it, or the, the message of Sidonia or something like that. Say, so, okay, I believe he's sincere. I also think he's wrong. I don't think that any of that is there or that it can, can even be implied. Uh, however... Uh, if he wants to toss it out there, and maybe there are some physicists who feel otherwise, uh, who knows? Maybe he's actually coming up with something, and I'm just too thick to see it. Uh, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, it's okay to theorize, but don't be stupid with it. Okay. Yeah. I don't have much to add, because I'm only vaguely familiar with the Sitchin stuff, so I, I think you could... It's almost like The Shining, in a way, you know? There are oh, people that could probably pick up the Sitchin books... And then they read into it, and they're saying, you know, there's a Stargate in here. Don't you see it? How could Sitchin not see there's a Stargate in here? And it's like, no, it's just... And conversely, there are people who would read Sitchin and immediately toss him out with the bathwater and say, this is the worst direct I've ever read. <laughs> well, to be honest, since uh, this is the equivalent of us sitting around the bar, that's pretty close to where I was on Sitchin stuff. I read about the first 30 to 60 pages of the first book, and then I put it down, and I just said, I could not, I can't get through this stuff. I can't get through this, so... I never really uh, gave it a fair chance, but I've heard plenty of summations of it, so I'm well oh, yeah. versed in that. Yeah, I understand. You're hardly alone. In fact, you're you're the majority. It's a tough book to get through. I, I my hats off to the people who have read all of them. I know you have, but there's all there's a small there's a small group of people that are well versed and can tell you what you know the seventh or eighth book was in that whole series. But to me, it's like wow. Sitchin is almost a labor of love for me and has to be because as a person, Sitchin was about the worst asshole I ever met in my entire life. He was just an asshole to asshole all the way down the line. You speak so fondly of him, though. Well, it's because the man was brilliant. Um, I kind of excuse his eccentricities because the man was brilliant. Uh, he He opened a lot of people's eyes to a lot of things, mine especially. But just as a person, he was a dick. I think, yeah. Didn't you tell me a story? I think you told it on the show once. I think he wrote you a letter or something, and he was kind of, he gave you a backhanded compliment. Or... Every letter. Every letter, <laughs> every conversation. Uh, we never had any exchange of words. 
in which he would not say something that was kind of a backhanded compliment and end up insulting me. His last paragraph or his last sentence would invariably be an insult. The guy was the most passive-aggressive asshole I ever met. <laughs> oh, my God. And it wasn't just me. He did that with everybody. He did that if he liked you. Now we're now we've really got a holiday special on our hands here. This is <laughs> this is what it's like sitting at the bar. Um, well, that's yeah. Well, I guess he's he I, in a way it kind of comes back to what I was talking about with you earlier, where it's like get, get in his mind. He's a genius. He he's he may have come up with this Copernicus esque discovery, and he, he has to do the UFO conference circuit. And when he's like, "Where's my Nobel Prize? I hate all of you." There is also another factor to Sitchin, mm-hmm. and that is that he was not entirely honest. Uh, and at no place in any of Sitchin's books, and I didn't find this out until many years after I had read them, I took for granted that he gave credit to Alexander Kazantsev. I don't remember him ever bringing up Ale- Alexander Kazantsev's name once. He doesn't cite Kazantsev's famous Pravda piece, uh, The Tenth Planet. Uh, he doesn't mention Kazantsev at all. Everything that Sitchin wrote was a popularization of Alexander Kazantsev in Russia, who wrote a piece in 1960 called The Tenth Planet that was serialized in Pravda. Hmm. Alexander Kazantsev was the godfather of ancient astronaut theory. He studied all of this stuff. Now, mind you, Sitchin took Kazantsev's research and took it further, so I'll give him credit for that. But he was also politicizing it, which, again, is my problem. He had to Zionize everything. If he couldn't Zionize it, it didn't exist. Yeah. That was his one real great flaw. Aside from, well, that and his insistence on on certain disprovable things. Uh, as far as the level of his research, though, I do have to compliment him. He did he did take the Kazantsev research further than it had gone before, I believe, and uh, especially took it into the Sumerology very, very heavily, and I think extremely well. All right. What's your Thanksgiving song? No, 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 Pass no. the cranberry sauce. We're having mashed potatoes. Oh, the turkey looks great. Lynn. Thank you for loving me. Lynn. Thank you for being there. Oh, God. Everyone's thanking. Lynn. The whole world's thanking you. Stop. Thanking Lynn. us for thanking Stop. you. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Cranberry sauce, we're having mashed potatoes. Oh, the turkey looks great. Thank you for loving me. Lynn. Thank you for being there. Please. Thank you for loving me. Everyone's thanking. The whole Lynn. world's thanking you. Thanking us for thanking you. Well, we've covered the Sitchin stuff pretty good and the Joe V question. He has one more. Thankfully, it's only a sentence. He says, uh, the sadly defunct television series Millennium. Discuss. I would love to discuss Millennium. It's been too long since I've seen it. Mm. Uh, that's one of those shows that I'm going to need to go back and rent, actually. I, I did watch them when they were out. I saw most of them, I believe. Uh, certainly, I was watching The X-Files intently at the time. But as I recall, Millennium came out right about the time that uh, my work schedule conflicted, and I wasn't able to watch it as much as I wanted to. I enjoyed the episodes that I saw, uh, but I, I can't go into it much detail on them because I don't don't remember them that well now. Yeah, I'm I'm totally unfamiliar with Millennium. So that was, was part of the X Files uh, universe. 
Yes, it was a spinoff of the X-Files. Okay. It was in season... Hold on a second, I'll figure this out. I've just been watching X-Files again, as a matter of fact. Uh, season 6 or season 7? Mm. I think it was season 6. And I'll have to stop and figure out what, exactly what year that was. I vaguely remember it. I can say here, I can read, uh, while, while you look for that, I figure it's only going to take a minute. Here's uh, the rest of uh, Joe V's email. I figure it deserves mention because you mentioned it before we started the show. He says... As always, Bruce, you're a fantastic guest. Whether I agree with you or not, you're always engaging. Benal, keep up the damn fine work. And then he says, I'll be drinking Belgian beer at the time this airs. What a humble brag that is. <laughs> Pass me one, man. Yeah. Look forward to hearing a fantastic show after I stagger out of bed tomorrow. So that's kind of what I love about this episode in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, folks are list- usually listen to the program within their work, but this is an episode that a lot of people are probably listening to while they're waiting to get on the plane, or on the plane on their way to Grandma's, or driving to Grandma's. Uh, so we, we kind of do ingrain ourselves into the holiday in a lot of ways. Hopefully uh, they've, they've covered the children's ears, or put put a DVD on for them in the back. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm flattered and pleased. Uh, I'm very glad that I can entertain people while they're they're getting through whatever their holiday nonsense is. <laughs> yeah. It's a little, little two-hour escape where uh, they can join us at the... Beyond the adults' table. There you go. <laughs> Did you figure out the millennium thing? 1999, yes. I had just started work right then, and um, it was not fitting comfortably into my work schedule at that time. That was why I didn't get to see it too much at the time. I caught some of them in rerun. Um, it, uh, it was in the seventh season, mm. just by the by. It was the fourth episode of the seventh season. Yeah. Uh, deliberate spinoff. Chris Carter had actually only intended... Uh, X-Files to run five years in the first place. So when it went beyond that, I mean, I don't think he was disappointed, but he was looking for something else to do, and he spun off Millennium, which was a pretty good idea. Uh, He was going with the idea of this Millennium group that were kind of waiting for the end of the world, or, you know, it it kind of tied in with the whole X-Files concept of aliens returning and uh, reclaiming the planet or something like that. So they were roughly connected, although I think Millennium had a, a bit more of a supernatural bent to it. I do remember enjoying episodes of it. Unfortunately, it's been so long since I've seen them, I don't remember them that well. I was you know, having just life problems at the time. Uh, you know, I had to do the job. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's hard to reminisce about a short-lived TV series anyway, even if it was really... I think it ran two years, as oh, I recall, wow. uh, which isn't bad. Yeah, that's better than I thought it would be. Yeah, it, it's a respectable run, especially for a spinoff. If it had gone three years, they could have syndicated it. Uh, I don't think anyone's really shown it since, but I'm sure it has to be on disc. And it's one of those, like I said, I've I've been going through the X-Files uh, just the last few weeks. I've been watching all the episodes again. Um, I've only got like a season and a half left to go. I didn't watch them in order. I watched the last two seasons, which I didn't get to see when they were running. I started with those, hmm. and uh, then I kind of worked my way backward. So I'm kind of finishing up seasons four and five right now. And once I'm done with those, I've pretty well watched them all again. Okay. I never got into X-Files. I'm one of those people that never never got into it. So, Everyone's got their thing, man. Yeah, I can't speak to it. People rave about it. A lot of people in this field rave about it all, for obvious reasons, but I never really... You know really why? Called... I, know, I can tell you why that is. It's because Mulder and Scully are all of us. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They represent us. They're doing what we do. I mean, I get I get why it was popular and everything. I just never really... To me, how long did it go? Like eight, nine years now? Nine this? years. Okay, yeah. That's a lot of TV to, to get into. 
Plus, that is a lot of TV to get. I'll tell you what amazes me is that Stargate actually went further than that. Well, I explained to somebody, too. It's uh, we, we'll, We're going to get into Lost in a moment from one of the questions, but I, I felt burned after Lost, so it took me a long time. I never tell got into about any it. of these. We cried in each other's beer the next day. Yes. <laughs> so I never got into any of these other... Uh, other shows that followed either. People talk about Breaking Bad and Walking Dead, and they all sound excellent. But to me, it's like I don't have the time. I, 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 you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It's I'll wait now and and really catch these shows in mass binges. So I don't. Where really I am, me. I rent them now. Hmm. There's apparently a whole lot of people just like me. Yeah. They they can't figure anything out on ratings anymore. Because there are too many people who won't sit in front of their TV and watch it when it's on. They'll pick it up on uh, a website afterward, or they'll they'll be like me, and they'll wait until the series has a whole season wrapped up. Then they'll rent it when it comes out on disc, and they'll just watch the whole thing in a binge. Yeah. That's what I do. And sure enough, I'm not alone. One of my friends was just telling me he'd read some articles about this not too long back. Yeah, it's a very popular trend. That's uh, that's kind of my plan with these other shows that have come out recently. Someday I'll sit down and get into them, but yeah, I can't after Lost. You know, there's only so much time in the day, as you know. Yeah, there are only so many hours in the day. This is the reason why I did my best to catch every title that I could in Hollywood versus the Aliens. A few of them were going to get missed, uh, either by negligence. Or simply because I had too many others. You got so many irons in the fire, you can't keep track of absolutely everything. So sure enough, a couple of them got missed. But uh, that's why we talk about them now. Exactly. David McIntyre has the next question. This is a good segue from what you were just saying. He wants to know if I can ask you if you originally set out to make your books intentionally academic. He usually gets through most books in a week, but most, uh, but both of your books were six weeks apiece. It was a nice change of pace to have to get into the books. Put the eyebrows on it, he says in parentheses, if you know where I'm coming from. The references, footnotes, etc. were exhaustive but ultimately rewarding. Bruce rocks rocks. So Thank you. <laughs> uh, in answer to your question, the, the simple Reader's Digest version is, yes, yes I did. Uh, I set out to write an academic book uh, and a scholarly book. I also wanted to make it completely accessible to the average reader. Hmm. Uh, which is a little bit of a challenge, but uh, I do think that I met that, and I'm very, very pleased with the result. Uh, anyone, I think anyone could pick up either of my books and read through them and not have any trouble. Uh, it might take them a little bit longer, but I don't think uh, I haven't come across anybody yet who has had trouble understanding them. Whether oh, no, they no, agree no. with them or not, yeah. that's an entirely different uh, subject. But they at least understand them. Hmm. And that was what I was trying to do. I also wanted to make sure that I had all my T's crossed, all my I's dotted, and that my notes had notes. So that any academics who happened to be reading it or any scholars who happened to be reading it could come at me. Say, we need a common meeting ground and a common discussion ground. And where you do that is with the academic format. So the academic format's all nailed down. It's like, you know, if you want to disagree with any of this, that's fine. But you have to go at it from the evidence. Uh, what you do when you put yourself into that format is you are forcing the arguments onto the evidence. So, you look, you can't attack me. If you have a problem with the evidence, fine. Let's go at the evidence. It, it, name your case. Let's go to the specific evidence you have a problem with, and let's talk about that. Right. Uh, so, yes, I was deliberately writing it in exactly that style and that format. And I think it took me about a month to read the the uh, Hollywood versus the Aliens, but to your credit, it's really it really it's a massive book, and it really is a page turner. Because I remember not just the jury. I really remember reading. I remember many instances of reading the book. 
And I can't say that for a lot of the books I've read for the show. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I can literally close my eyes and put myself on my back deck on a nice May afternoon reading uh, the 80s chapter of Hollywood vs. the Aliens. I can still remember this, so it, it left a mark for me, for sure. That's very flattering. Well, I mean it. I can honestly tell you, I, I, I can I can really put myself there. <laughs> um, I, I will allow this quick little side question uh, from Hillbilly, because we've covered this a lot of times, and we're on the topic of the books. Well, what, can, can we get an... I usually do this toward the end of the show, but any any update on the chances of your books getting reprinted? Because uh, the, with the Kindle explosion, now is the time for... for sort of a renaissance for these two books. People would really be able, really want to read them uh, in that way, I think, in a big way, because they're so long, and you know how people are whiny, and oh, yeah. they feel better about reading uh, a 400-page book if it, if it was the size of a magazine. I had a friend of mine suggest to me that I might want to split the books into sections, because really, in reprint anymore... Uh, my publisher suggested to me when they went out of print that I go ahead and self-publish them because apparently that's what everybody does now. Hmm. Um, there are some problems with self-publishing. There, it, it fixes a lot of problems, more problems than it creates. But one of the problems it creates is the price that you have to stick on the thing if it's a big book is usually pretty high because it's not cheap. Yeah, we mean physically doing... self-publishing. Yes. Uh, even if you're going through a self-publishing company, uh and even if they're only doing it by demand or by personal order, it's still a big volume. Right, <laughs> it's a right. lot of paper and a lot of ink. And um, just to cover costs, you have to charge double whatever it costs to get the thing made in order to make any kind of money at all. So both of my books are enormous, uh, the second one especially. And I'm not sure what the actual cost would be of getting any of those things printed. The advantage is that Kindle exists, and right. sadly, everyone seems to want Kindle anymore. It does have its advantages. I don't care for it myself because it gives me eye strain, and that, and I like to hold the book. I yeah, like I'm not a huge Kindle fan, but I can deal with it. Right. If I'm going to do it on Kindle, I'm either going to have a special pad to do it, or I've got to be sitting in front of my computer screen, and I've got other things to do on my computer screen. This is why I go out and drink coffee, so I can read books. Uh, it's a perfect time to sit down and read a book. I like the smell of the book. I like the feel of the book. I like the heft of it. I just love books. I don't know what to say. Yeah. But the Kindle is extremely helpful in that it cuts the cost by half of what someone wants to buy. Uh, and that encourages people to buy more of it. Uh, if I broke the book into parts or the books into parts, it might be a hell of a lot easier on the publishing costs. Uh I'm not sure what else I'd have to do in order to, to make that happen. I'm kind of looking into a lot of this. Uh, I'll probably be getting my PDFs back from the publisher within a month or two, I'm going to say. Uh, they're not really that expensive. I just kind of need to come up with the money. To, you actually have to give them a fee to get your, your own book back, <laughs> which it's not that much of a problem. They'd let you know that in advance. It's the PDF. You're buying the PDF, basically. Yeah. And then you can do whatever you want with it. Um once I have the PDFs back and I figure out what I need to do and get a little bit of research into what the best way is and the most economical way is to uh, put them into reprint, I am planning on putting them into reprint. I'm just not sure exactly what the log logistics are going to be yet, so I okay. can't give a date. But I'm, I'm looking at uh, sometime next year, I mean sometime in 2014. All right. Well, I can almost guarantee you, unless you do it, that we'll, you'll be asked about it on the Rucksgiving 2014 special, so don't... <laughs> 
Uh, I will probably have whatever issues resolved by then and have figured out what I'm going to do. Nice. I, I won't be putting them both out at the same time. I'll probably put out uh, Architects first, mostly because it's easy. Architects is a pretty easy one to put out. Uh, with Hollywood especially, there are picture rights issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we talked uh, about that, yeah. Well, and this is why in the old days, when you used to see a hardback with lots of great pictures in it, and then it came out in mass paperback and it had no pictures at all, that's why. It's because it was too expensive and too difficult to go back and get the picture rights all over again and renegotiate them for a mass, ma- mass market paperback edition. So they just dropped them. Uh, that would kind of hurt my book. My book wants pictures very much. Um, but already there are at least a half dozen pictures I'm going to have to drop straight off the bat just because I know the studios are impossible to do business with. Uh, the studios that I did business with at the time are not the studios that I would be doing business with now, and I know what those studios are and just how difficult they are to deal with. So some of them I'm just going to have to drop straight off the bat. Uh, on the flip side and the better side of things, uh, there are also some pictures that are public domain that I wanted to put in the first time but didn't know that they were public domain. Hmm. So I can add a few where I'm going to have to drop a few. If I were smart, I'd drop a lot of them, but that would also probably hurt sales. Well, that's why you just slap a revise and expand it on the cover, and the what you take out counts as revised. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that way if someone writes to you and they're like, what happened to that part? You can be like, "That's it has been revised. You charged me twice as much and gave me no pictures at all. What the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, welcome to the self-publishing world, man. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, and you write back and you're like, didn't you read, didn't you see the word revised? That's what revised means. Uh, Darren wants to know, actually, before I get to Darren's thing, uh, David, who just wrote in, he says, uh, regarding you, he says, you are awesome, and he wants me to let you know that. So, oh, well, thank you. Yes, and I, uh, while we're there, Chuck Brewer says, hell's yes, my fave guest, and James Scheiste says, oh, hell yeah. That, that was when I announced the episode. So, I'm just amazed I even have fans, so thank you, guys. They go crazy for you, Bruce, and you know I'm a fan because I keep trying to get you on the show all the time. We built this whole holiday around you. I don't want the men in black hassling you now because we <laughs> we built I, a, a faux religion think, around. <laughs> I don't think they're going to bother me. <laughs> I think they they pretty well put me by the wayside, and I can't. I am very very happy about that. Yeah. Darren in San Diego wants to know. He says he's a longtime listener of the program. He's wondering if I could ask you uh, what your thoughts are on the movie They Live. I think we talked about this on the original Rocks trilogy. We can revisit it. That's uh, a great movie. He, he likes how John Carpenter made the one percent as alien invaders using the planet Earth as their third world. Yep, <laughs> I love that movie. Nice to see anyone remembers that movie. Hmm. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't remade that. Actually, it, it was pretty popular back when it was. It was kind of a cult hit when it was first made, and it's still popular with a lot of us. I'm definitely one of that cult. It, I just thought it was a brilliant idea. Uh, you've basically got this, like he said, you got the one percent. And they're keeping the other 99% asleep with their their hypnotic programming and all this stuff. Unless you happen to get the glasses, you can see them for what they are. <laughs> they may see you seeing them. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Yeah, that's a great movie. That's ripe for a remake. Um, yeah, there's not much really to say about it. I, th- I think. Uh, well, I guess we should. That's a good jumping-off point to John Carpenter, though. Do you think he was? Do you think there was a message there? Because it does kind of connect to the whole idea of, in a lot of ways, it connects to the whole idea of, of an Ikean uh, reptilian uh, conspiracy theory. That may have been where he got it. I think that Ike was writing his stuff after they live. Hmm. Uh, but I don't think that those theories were exactly new with David Ike. 
my guess, and it is entirely a guess, I've never really spoken with John Carpenter, I like a lot of his movies, um, is that he was just kind of playing with that and mostly using it for political purposes. I think he was kind of just slamming on the Republican Party for the most part. But uh, in other words, I don't know whether there was an actual agenda behind it or not, or whether he was consciously part of it. I think he was just having a hell of a lot of fun and getting to smear his political enemies. Hmm. But it does fit in very nicely with the thesis of being controlled and whether or not that control comes from uh, specifically people down here or perhaps someplace else. The best thing about it, and they, they played with this quite a bit in Blade Three too, which I really liked, uh, is the idea that, look, the vampires own everything, man. <laughs> there are people that, that play along with them. and make it, There are human beings that play along with them and make it easier for them. Uh, they're sort of the satraps of the aliens or the vampires or whichever. Okay, you know what? I don't even really disagree with that worldview. Uh, everyone's going to put a different name on exactly who that 1% is, and I'm not going to go there. Hmm. But, yeah, we all know that there's the 1%, and that for the most part we're managed and, and made sheep. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, you know, you're saying that uh, about the political uh, connection. It's people need to realize and also think about it that sometimes in these movies, the aliens are supposed to represent a human. It's like a reverse of the of the conspiracy almost. You know what I mean? It's the aliens. Sure. The aliens represent I don't know the neocons or the liberals or whatever. That's right. That's right. One of the great things about science fiction, Rod Serling used to talk about this quite a bit, and he's completely right. Uh, you can't write uh, a drama or a piece that slams another party or another race unless you create an entirely different thing and sort of graft everything that you wanted to say onto your invention. Right. In other words, if you give them a different name, if you conceal them, then you can do that. Gene Roddenberry couldn't openly say something about the Russians, but he could say something about the Klingons. He could have the Federation uh, dealing with the Klingons in particular ways and say everything that he wanted to say about the Russians by doing that. Hmm. Uh, that's just the way you do it. You put on that kind of mask, and that's how you play the game. Okay. Lone Gunman. This is the guy that caused all this, Bruce. He's the one that requested you way, way, way back, five, six, seven years ago at this point. See what you did. Aren't <laughs> yeah. you ashamed of yourself, Lone Gunman? <laughs> he is the man that launched a thousand rucks episodes by his mere request, and I, I can't thank him enough, so kudos to him. He's indelibly left his mark on this program. Well, he's he, got a great moniker. Indeed, indeed. He wants to know what you think of the... This is a fascinating question, too, so clearly this guy knows what he's talking about. He wants to know what you think of the whole off-world slash elite scenario that has been in recent movies like Elysium uh, and Oblivion, and also was part of Alternative 3 in 1977. You just hit it right there. You answered your own question. It all comes from Alternative 3. Alternative 3 was a government disinformation. I can't prove this for a fact, but Alternative 3 was a government disinformation program probably used primarily to deflect attention from the church committee's MKUltra investigations that were going on right at the same time in Congress. Um, the MKUltra stuff is the CIA mind control experiment, which gets into programmed assassins, the Manchurian candidate, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Information on that was coming out in leaps and bounds by the church committee, and documents were being shredded by the box load uh, by George W. Bush, as a matter of fact. Uh, or excuse me, George Bush Sr. George Herbert Walker Bush was actually doing that, who was head of the CIA at the time. And he was shredding as many MKUltra documents as he possibly could at the same time that they were landing in Congress's lap. And uh, Congressman John Marks wrote a couple of excellent books 
uh, just on the, the boxes of material that he was going through on stuff coming from the CIA. Hmm. Uh, but that didn't come out until you know many years later because it takes a long time to go through all those. But anyway, while those investigations were taking place in Congress, along with a lot of other CIA abuses, uh, along comes Alternative 3 out of Britain. Alternative 3 purporting to be a documentary and showing on a science show that ordinarily does show documentaries did a an April Fool's episode that wasn't on April Fool's. <laughs> ah. But this was later this was how they were later palming it off. Yes. They, oh, it was an April Fool's joke. Um they just made this scenario that the secret government conspiracy was that the one percent uh, knew that the world was coming to an end, that the resources weren't going to work, that catastrophes were going to happen, there were going to be riots, blah, 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 whatever. Everything was going to fall apart. So they were preparing their little base off-world, where they were going to live and set up a whole new world and a whole new future. Now, that has taken off into sci-fi like nobody's business. It's a great scenario. I can see why people want to play with that, because it's, it's got very dramatic elements, and it's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I haven't seen Elysium yet. I will see it. Uh, this is one of those that I'll, I'll probably just rent. A lot of these things I get when they come out on rental. I just right. say, I'll, I'll rent it. Uh, I don't need to rush out to the theater to catch it. But I'm sure I'll enjoy it, and it's definitely a fun scenario to play with. As to whether or not that's actually happening, uh, I don't believe that there's any kind of actual off-world conspiracy, simply because it would be too difficult. I don't believe we have the technology available for something like that. Though if we did, <laughs> right. then, yeah, I imagine they'd be doing something like that. If anything, they could be – if again, we're sort of going under the auspices of an idea that they can't get off the planet. The, if anything, they could then in turn just be underground. They could just be developing some escape plan just to uh, bail on us and go live underground. Well, I'll tell you what's funny about that. That's been in place since the 1950s. That's, that's what I mean. The Pentagon, yeah. that's Washington, D.C., uh, that's the Kremlin, that's um, – Novosibirsk, that's all these, you know, super, super strong military strongholds. Uh, there's a whole city underneath Washington, D.C. Yeah, we and, just touched on it because I'm sure places like London, Paris, Tokyo, they all have their own super underground uh, complexes of various sophistication levels. Of course they do. There's even a practical reason for that. The practical reason for that is simply the bomb. We forget about the bomb. The bomb is still there. Uh, if we had you know, massive nuclear strikes, this all came in, uh, under Ronald Reagan. He kind of called it to the head with Executive Order Rex 84. Uh, this was the idea that there has to be the continuity of command in case of a nuclear strike or a massive catastrophe. You know, If we got hit with some biological agent or something like that, maybe you have massive uh, catastrophe in the, the uh, communication chain and command. Yeah. This is where you have to have alternate... Um, living quarters and safe places to be. So, of course, they were making massive underground bunkers and safe houses for all practical intents and purposes. That's still a viable threat. That could still happen. I don't put it on the high realm of possibility just because the civilized nations that have these things are smart enough not to use them for precisely that reason, which does make you wonder why they're not smart enough not to build them in the first place, but there you go. Hmm. Okay. I think part of the whole thing, too, uh, the underlying message. I again now I'm completely I'm like a blind man in an orgy here. I'm just feeling my way through this cuz I don't I haven't seen Elysium or Oblivion, but I based on what I know that they're about. I feel like there's probably this underlying sort of feeling that people are feeling left behind by the powers that be. And it it seems like worse than ever than it ever has in my lifetime. So, 
It stands to reason that that would manifest itself in films. Yeah. It's been pervasive for decades. Um, We were talking about the Kennedy assassination earlier. I think it all went south when Kennedy got hit, precisely because the people that hit him never were were called for it. So we got a a new form of government Hmm. uh, cemented itself into place, and it's never leaving. Uh, they'd always been there, but now they're cemented into place and they're never leaving. Yeah, that's how things are going to be till doomsday, folks. <laughs> so stick around. Uh, okay, now Red Sun Superman, who has rarely he rarely ventures out of the uh, out of the BOA forum, but he's actually in the chat tonight, so that's a good thing. And uh, he posted a, a series of questions uh, this afternoon. They're they're pretty short ones, so we'll, we'll cover those. Um, he wants to know, what do you think of current shows like Sleepy Hollow and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I really want to see both of those shows. Uh, Sleepy Hollow hasn't fit into my schedule very well. Uh, I'm probably going to end up renting it as soon as they have a or if it's on a marathon. If they run a marathon of them and I'm home, then I'll watch them then. If not, then I'll have to wait for it to come on disc. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is kind of the same way. Um, I very much want to see both of those shows. I hear fantastic things about... Uh, both of them, and uh, I, I just like the look of them. Uh, I like the commercials, and it, with Sleepy Hollow especially, that was just such a weird premise from the start. I, I kind of raised my eyebrows when I was first hearing it, hmm. but then I saw some commercials, and I said, you know what? <laughs> if you went at this well enough, you could probably pull it off, and it sounds like they're doing it. So uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing both of those. Okay. The one that looks good to me is Grim, but I haven't uh, checked that one out at all. My sister is big into Grimm. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, she just loves that show. Uh, I get that stuff from Lost Girl, I think, is my favorite one of, of that genre. Mm. What's that one? It's largely the same thing. All of these things are supernatural subculture uh, genre, basically. Yeah, because they have that one that's like a fairy tale. It's kind of, it's, like, it's from like the makers of Lost. It's uh, Once Upon a Time. That looks pretty good, too, but I never really got into it. You know, I think I saw an episode of that once when I was out at the coffee shop. They've got a TV there, which they usually show sports on. But sometimes it just kind of gets forgotten, and I think that that was what was on one night that I was watching. Uh, whatever it was, I was kind of enjoying it. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Um, also, Red Sun Superman wants to know, uh, This is uh, hopefully this doesn't get too deep, if you could have created an ending for Lost, forgetting the whole final season storyline, what would your explanation of the island be, and what role would Vincent the dog have played in it? Man, I'll tell you, there's a question for you. <laughs> yeah, we only... <laughs> okay, uh, if if I had had a month yeah. to work on that one, I could have come up with an answer for you. Uh, and if I was willing to go through Lost again, which I will not. But if I was willing to go through Lost again and actually look over all of the various story elements, if I've got a real gripe with J.J. Abrams, it's this. He could have come up with something that would have tied up everything. He could have tied up everything. Even if he didn't know what it was in advance, he could have come up with something and done it. A good writer could do it. If you gave me a month to go over all of the different story elements and what he did with them, I could come up with some way to tie them together. Yeah. Cannot tell you what that would be, but I'd come up with some good sci-fi thing to tie it all together. I agree with that. I mean, they had the whole summer before the season started. They could have just sat down one day, made a huge list of all the questions they needed to answer, and, and actually done it. seven years. <laughs> He could have done this at any time. It, my my one great gripe with J.J. J. Abrams is that he created the ultimate triumph of style over substance and proved that you can do a cock tease for seven years and never have to pay off. 
I agree. I think, uh, well, in fairness to J.J. Abrams, he turned the show over to those two other guys that turned out to be pretty obnoxious. But uh, Yeah, but he's responsible for that, too. Yeah, his name's on it, so he should have stepped in and made sure they were doing the right thing. Uh, That's right. When they he's were still responsible. You still got to fix that. Mm. And you could. I mean, seriously, just one month. You get a good writer in there, in one month, you can come up with something that will tie everything together. Invent something. You'll come up with it. The scary part is, uh, will this, uh, I was going to say one thing, but then I thought of another thing in my head here. First of all, it's really sad because I loved the show, and as it was closing out, everyone was excited. It felt like this thing was going to live on anyway, and they, they were talking about maybe movies or comic books or something like that, and then it ended, and it's just been dead ever since. There's no... Because it, nothing tied together and nothing made any sense. Right. People just completely turned on it, and even the... The other part uh, that, that I was about to say before I got, wanted to say that was that it's kind of sad. Uh, sometimes on rare occasions, I don't know if I'm feeling nostalgic or what, I'll pop into these lost chat rooms or, or uh, message boards, and they, you know, there, there are people that, that have taken far more than a month and probably do tie up the whole thing using the convoluted uh, ending that we were given but they shouldn't have to. That's the whole point of it. Like They shouldn't have to. Yeah, you shouldn't have to spend a month of your own time explaining what they told us. So Yeah. That's a, we're we're totally in agreement on all that. If your audience has to write the thing for you, you've got a problem. <laughs> exactly. So you don't have a story. Choose your own adventure. If if Abrams had not redeemed himself with the Star Trek reboot, I would I'd just completely boot him myself, but he did redeem himself with the Star Trek reboot. Okay, well, that's a perfect segue for RSS's final of his three questions, which is, are you as terrified as he is of what Disney and J.J. Abrams will do to the new Star Wars trilogy, and do you think the Timothy Zahn books should be the basis of the new trilogy series? I'm unfamiliar with Timothy Zahn. Um, does he write the the fan novels or something? I presume he writes some kind of like officially sanctioned uh, fan fiction. Okay, I haven't actually read any of those, so I couldn't answer that as far as that goes. As far as Disney and Abrams, when that first came up, I was laughing quite a bit. My eyebrows raised and I laughed. I just thought, Disney is going to be doing Star Wars. But then I stopped and I thought, you know, Disney actually owns Marvel now. And the Marvel movies are just the most amazing things that come out. Hmm. We were talking about this earlier. Uh, They've got a, a consistent unified production design kind of for all of them. They all plugged together very well, and they ultimately led to the Avengers, which was fantastic. Uh, I'm not even that big a Marvel fan. I'm a DC guy myself. I love Batman. But these guys, uh, they really have their act together when it comes to making movies. They know what they're doing. Now, they've got DC just blown out of the water. Even the crappy uh, Marvel movies still turn out well. Uh, Now, that's just the, to point out the fact that Disney actually owns Marvel now, and this is what comes out. Marvel is its own production company. Disney is just making the money off of it. They pretty much let Marvel do whatever they're going to do for the most part, at least as I understand it. How much of a hand they're actually going to stick into Star Wars, I don't know. I think they're probably just going to hand it to Abrams and tell him to helm the thing for them. He did such a, Abrams did such a good job with the Star Trek reboot. I do have some complaints with it, but they're minimal compared to the... Uh, the return that he's giving us. Uh, the funny thing there is, J.J. Abrams was not at all a Star Trek fan. He never watched the series. Uh, he had no interest in Star Trek at all when they handed it to him. What he did was then go to like five or six guys like me 
who knew the show up one side, down the other, loved it, grew up with it, and he let them coach him through it. He asked them questions. He watched the whole series himself. He just he rented all the discs and he watched them all through. And he talked with his guys. He got a good team around him. And the next thing you know, he came up with this great reboot. He did a really, really good job. <coughs> I am assuming he's going to do the exact same thing with Star Wars. But ultimately, the question can only be answered this way. Could anybody possibly do worse than George Lucas? The good news <laughs> is that it has gone to anybody else. And if it was going to go to somebody, J.J. Abrams, um, probably a good shot. There's probably a good shot for that. Okay. Yeah, I feel confident. Uh, they had to get it out of the hands of... I'm not even a big Star Wars fan. It's amazing that, that you and I are such good friends, because we have very different interests in uh, a lot of this stuff, but uh, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but part, uh, almost entirely because I, I really don't care for George Lucas and kind of how it all became its own little thing. So I'm hopeful. I'll get it, I'll give it a shot when the Disney remake happens. So I'm curious to see what's done with it. It was a... I, don't, I mean, I don't know how you felt, uh, but... I was stunned that that they even. Uh, I was stunned that they, that Disney bought it. That came out of nowhere. That seemed like an April Fool's type story for like a billion dollars, something crazy like that, right? You know why? Because they're going to make ten times that just oh, the first yeah. year. Oh, absolutely. It's a pure money decision. Like it's the same thing with Marvel, uh, Marvel, Star Wars, any of that stuff. It's purely a money decision. Mm. Uh, where Disney is really smart in this regard, I, it used to be I could not stand anything that Disney did. In the last ten years, I've come to, uh, really come full circle with Disney. I find a lot of stuff that they put on the air now I really like, and I'm very much surprised by that. And I'm all the more surprised when I find out that they've picked up, say, Marvel and Star Wars and God knows what else they're sticking their fingers into, practically everything. Hmm. But what's amazing me is that they're staying hands-off with it. They're being smart businessmen. What they do is say, let's hire the people who know what to do and just make the money off it. Yeah. So they're actually becoming the producers and just appointing the people that they think are going to make it work. That's smart. That's good business. Uh, it, if Abrams could do it with Star Trek, then he could probably do it with Star Wars, especially considering that he, he wasn't a fan of any of this. Uh, if he feels the same way about Star Wars, that's even better because he's going to go at it and redo it and probably redo it right. Okay. So we'll see. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, too, about them just staying out of the way. They, they just do a good job of, like, setting it all up and, and uh, putting the money into it, and that's it. They put the machine into place and fund it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, we got one question left here from the submitted ones, and then uh, you and I are going to do a little Rucks Giving Leftovers after the live show. We'll cover some of the stuff that people posted in the chat, because I felt bad that I shot them down over and over See again. how easy we filled this? Is this amazing or what? I know. We got one. Well, <laughs> You haven't heard the final question. This is from Jim Leitica, who posted this during the conversation. He said, uh, in a previous interview, Bruce seemed pretty sure aliens are physically vi visiting us. Could you ask him to summarize what made him come to this conclusion? I feel like saying to Jim, the the, the summary is uh, your first book. But, yeah. uh, you know, give us, in five minutes, give us a summary of, of sort of what led you to all that. Five-minute recap. There are no aliens. The aliens are us. We are them. We are a colony of them. We forgot our origins. The human race did not originate here, at least not all of us. We migrated here from someplace else in antiquity. Civilization began someplace else. It moved here. 
Uh, it evolved on its own on this planet over a very, very long period of time. They fought wars with each other. They got us involved in those wars. They created slave races on this planet to assist them and got them involved in their wars. Eventually, there were civil wars between them that we were involved in. We had a rebellion against them, not unlike uh, 1776. And just like 1776, even if they had the superior technology, they had a long way to come in order to try and keep us in line. And they finally just shook the dust of the planet off their heels and said, fine, screw the lot of you. You're all going to kill each other anyway. We reserve the right to take what resources we want. We'll be visiting and we'll agree to stay out of the way, but we also expect to be left alone. That's who the aliens are. They're us. We're them. They remember the connection between us. We don't. That's it in a quick summary. Okay, and to, to you did it actually in like a minute, which is amazing. Um, and and to tack on to that, he says summarize what made you come to this conclusion. I'm gonna I'm gonna step in here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'd say the work of Sitchin, the um, the classic quote unquote myths and legends of all the races around the world and, and the various cultures that all seem to connect to this idea. Uh, I think that's kind of what made you come to this conclusion, right? Archaeology, universal mythology, history, yes. Uh, Sitchin pointed the way, and he opened up a lot of doors. I took his research a great deal further than he was willing to take it himself. That was his own self-limitation. He's not perfect. He did a remarkable job of doing what he did do. He did make a few mistakes, but he did point the right direction. Uh, I continued his research moved it into the directions he should have in the first place, went a great deal further with it, I think. But it, it's all exactly in what you're saying. It's in our history, our myth texts, uh, our, it's in our archaeology. You can find it all over. Uh, all of these things led me to believe, and especially artifacts on Mars. I do believe those artifacts are there. Uh, hopefully when we get the blog thing going on your site, I'm mm-hmm. going to uh, post a piece on that and show some updated pictures of the Mars phase, which I think demonstrate the point completely. Uh, I do believe that Ancient Egypt was directly connected to the planet Mars in antiquity, that basically Mars moved here and established itself in Egypt and probably a few other places around the world. Uh, That's what led me to believe uh, what I believe and and why my theories are what they are. Okay. That covers it pretty well. All right. Well, that was the last question uh, that we got submitted over the course of uh, the week or so leading up to and during the show. We'll hold off on the chat questions till uh, the show ends because we only got about seven minutes left. Um, now, you teased it here. We're still working on it. Once, Probably once the holidays get settled down a little bit, we're going to bring you into Banal of America, and hopefully you're going to do some writing for us, right? Yeah. That's the plan. Let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. And I'm looking forward to it because, like, I, as you can see from all the emails I got and all the excitement and everything, people want to hear more from you. So, have you? I, I, I we've done this before. We've had this question before. But have you considered, a, uh, you know, a third book? I think you said something about maybe delving into the pyramids more. Well, I don't know. People ask me that quite a bit. My friends all would like to write, have me write something else. The thing is, when it comes to all the ancient astronaut stuff and the Hollywood conspiracy and all that, I've pretty well covered all the bases. Yeah. And I could continue with that, but it's not going to be anything new that I haven't said before. It's just the ongoing saga. Uh, so I haven't really thought of writing any new books as far as that goes, or at least on that subject. Oh, it was Pirates that you were talking about. Pirates I've been talking about for some time, only because everyone keeps harassing me to write a book about the Pirates and Freemasons and Templars. 
Uh, because I see a very solid connection with worlds of research and worlds of evidence behind it, uh, with archaeological evidence, symbolic evidence, ritual evidence, just all kinds of stuff that that should satisfy any scholar to connect the, the Templars to the Freemasons through the underground of the Golden Age pirates. Um, and I have had people ask me to write that for a long period of time. The real problem with that is, as I discovered with my first two books, you can spell stuff out so that people can understand it very easily. You can lock all your notes in place. You can cite all your sources. People don't want the truth, and they don't want to know something. They want to play with things. They want to theorize things. So it's almost uh, self-defeating to try and write a book that explains things that are easily explainable, uh, which is why I wrote a play about the pirates and, and the Masons and the Templars instead of a book about them. And I think that the play is ten times better than the book that I would write, quite frankly, and does the job much better. Uh, I could end up writing that book anyway, somewhere down the line, mm-hmm. uh, just out of boredom, if nothing else. <laughs> but I don't have any plans to it present. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Well, we need something to talk about on Rucksgiving 2015. So uh, I am amazed continually that we have no problem at all <laughs> filling two hours with nothing planned in advance. Yeah, and then needing to go into overtime. And then needing to go into overtime, as we did apparently get through all the questions and we're down to, what, like four minutes or something like that? Yeah, we covered every question that was uh, submitted in the proper fashion. And then, uh, then of course, there were people in the chat room who had a whole slew of, uh, we got one, two, three, four, about four extra questions that came in during the conversation, which we'll get to uh, after we say goodbye to the live listeners. So that gives them a reason to download the episode tomorrow morning and, and check it out. There you go. Um, on that note, Bruce, I can't wait to get you uh, writing for Banal of America. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I, uh, people are clamoring for more Bruce Rocks always, so it'll be exciting to bring you into BOA 3.0. And as a fan, it'll be exciting to be able to read your stuff. Because as I said before uh, on the show when we talked, I, I get these massive emails from you, and I, 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 I really wish you'd share them with people. So now we'll, we'll get those in the into the arms of uh, other folks, thank God. Um, and I can't thank you enough for... for being a part of this, you know, it's a. Uh, I very much thrill. enjoy doing this. Uh, the mere fact that if anyone really wants to listen, that's fine. I'm more than happy to chat, and um, I'm glad that I can help make people's holidays a little bit easier to get through. Absolutely, yeah, that's how I feel as well. I really, uh, I do love doing this show, and especially the holiday shows. Uh, as I said before, some folks they're probably going to have Friday off. They're almost certainly going to be listening to this either while they're decompressing on Thursday afternoon or en route to grandma's house uh Wednesday night or Thursday morning so it's it's been a it's been a thrill to go along for the ride with you folks and thank you for your support of Been All of America this is our way of saying thanks uh sort of having a bit of a dinner party on on the Tuesday night before Thanksgiving with our old friend Bruce Rucks uh let's throw the plugs in here as we wrap it up Architects of the Underworld as well as Hollywood versus the Aliens I think they're pretty hard to get a hold of, but if you're committed and you really want them, you'll be able to. And hopefully soon they'll be back out in a more uh, easily accessible fashion. But those are the Bruce Rocks books, folks. Go out and get them if you haven't yet. If you're just discovering this show somehow and you don't know how you found us, you definitely want to check out the website, banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. We're on Facebook, same thing, Banal of America, punch it in, 
We're up to uh, 1,112 likes. We were at the uh, the magical 1111 recently, but we've already passed that. So uh, kudos to those folks. Uh, the show is free, obviously. You're listening to this for free. You're downloading it for free. Uh, it doesn't cost you a thing. It costs me quite a bit, though. And if you could help us out, that would be great. You can do so by going to PayPal. Uh, just head over to the All of America. There's a PayPal button there. Click that. That'll walk you through the process. Also, we have a P.O. box, so you can mail us a P.O. box donation if you so choose. Uh, normally, this is where we plug next week's episode, but I'm thinking about taking the week off because I got Thanksgiving, as all of you do, on Thursday, and I'm kind of burned out. I kind of want to take a little rest, and I've got a huge work week coming up next week. So we'll most likely be back on December 10th with an absolute slobber knocker of an episode, a real barn burner. I don't want to say much more about that. But you probably will hear from me next week because we're talking about doing a Good Parade Christmas special. So there may be a Good Parade Christmas special coming at you next Thursday. And on that note, thank you very much, folks, for tuning in. Stay tuned for more Rucks Giving Leftovers in just a moment. We've uh, bid farewell to the live listeners, but we're still recording, Bruce. So Wow. Uh, <laughs> and effortless. It was effortless. That was great. That was awesome. Thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, folks are still listening as we speak, so not live, but uh, to the podcast. So welcome to uh, Rucks Giving Leftovers, folks. This is the this is the second helping. This is where you get your uh, cold turkey, your stuffing, pop it in the microwave. We got some giblets and gravy. Exactly. Now's the time to crack open the beer. So let's get down to business. That's actually a great idea. I'm still having coffee. I am going to stop out of the porch and have another cigarette, though. So That's fine. That's fine. Um, so if it frizzes, if it sounds a little funny, that's what it is, guys. Just yeah. bear with. Yeah. This is, the, this, is the, this is the after party, so it's all good. Cool. Um, while you head outside for the cigarette, the, the first question that popped in in the chat right at the beginning uh, was also from uh, Hillbilly, who wrote in earlier, he, he wanted to know your thoughts on Velikovsky, which is, I think, something that you and I have never talked about before. So You know, you know what I meant to bring him take? up when we were talking about Sitchin and the planetary collision stuff? Uh, as a matter of fact, I was thinking of questions coming, and Velikovsky came to mind, so I'm not surprised that he got brought up here. Uh, I'm very familiar with Velikovsky. I feel the same way about him as I do about Sitchin, which is to say that he did a remarkable amount of research. I do not believe he's completely correct, and in some instances I'm positive he isn't. Uh, he has the same problem with planetary mechanics that Sitchin does, uh, only in his case it's that he doesn't take into account Bode's Law. Uh, Bode's Law says that planets are always at specific astronomical units uh, of measurement, and that that will be true throughout the universe. And so far we have found that to be the case. Uh, if Velikovsky was correct that Venus originated as uh, a body inside of the planet Jupiter, was ejected, and ended up in the place where it's at, then Velikovsky would have to account for what was taking the place that Venus occupied before Venus got there. Hmm. And he doesn't do that. There had to be a planet there before. Uh, however, even if he's wrong about that, I don't think he's wrong about everything else. The real problem with Velikovsky is nailing down exactly what he was right about. He's not someone that I ever throw out with the bathwater. I think he was a very, very intelligent guy and did some phenomenal research. And every now and then I do take uh, Worlds in Collision off the shelf and go through it again with a fresh eye just to see what I might find in it. Hmm. Uh, he's worth reading. Uh, you have to go at him kind of carefully. 
but uh, all in all, he's not uh, he's not any worse than a lot of the current crop. Uh, for instance, uh, I've mentioned Hoagland already. I think Hoagland's wrong on several things. It doesn't mean he hasn't done a lot of good research, uh, and a lot of it that I, I quote and cite myself. Uh, Robert Temple, who wrote The Serious Mystery, it's an excellent book. Uh, he's written other books that I think are completely off base, and he does have errors in The Serious Mystery. However, The Serious Mystery is still worth reading. Um, it, once you get a certain base of knowledge, you can go with these all of these guys with a little bit better critical eye. It's okay if someone is wrong on something. you know. It doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. <laughs> and if their research is sufficient that it's worth looking at in the first place, go ahead and look at it. Just, you know... Be careful and go at it with a critical eye and, and read the criticisms of it and try and figure, factor those things in when you're looking at their stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, with somebody like Velikovsky, part of it is, like you said, he probably had a lot of good ideas, but he, he was from a different era. There's, there's new science now. You know? yes. it's, it, it, he, there are things that he couldn't have possibly known. That he Obviously, if he was alive today, he would have, uh, you know, the thing would have evolved. His theories would have evolved and changed. He would probably have amended his own theories. I agree. So, I I never really got too into that either. I think partially because everybody, uh, I think he, I got into all this like in 2003 or 2004, and I think a lot of people, by then he had already been kind of written off and, and kind of like Lowell, uh, the guy who saw all the stuff on the moon. Like, no one ever seemed to, or Mars, I mean, but no one ever seemed to give uh, Velikovsky much, much due by the time I got into all this. So, I, I have to revisit him, I think. Bolikovsky was pretty much universally despised from the start. Uh, he flew in the face of all the conventional wisdom. The thing is, he was right about most of what he wrote about as far as the solar system went. Um, but that doesn't mean that all of his theories are correct. Hmm. All right. That covers the Velikovsky part. Um, Kimberly Reck wanted to know your thoughts on this thing called the Black Satellite. Have you heard of this? I have not heard of this. Okay, that's why I didn't even bother to break in through the program and mention it, because uh, it, it was completely news to me, too. It's apparently this strange object out in the in the solar system. Uh, the, yeah, it's the Black Knight satellite. Maybe that might, I doubt that would ring any additional bells for you. But, uh, Sounds cool. Yeah, it's called the Black Knight satellite. If you Google it, it looks like a rock that's floating around. Apparently, it's in orbit around uh, the Earth, and uh, there's various theories about it. But I've never even heard of it, so I don't. I mean, I can't imagine either. It's just getting big now, or it got big and got debunked, and people still are hanging on to it. I mean, I don't know anything about it. This Asteroid, is, planetoid, part of a comet? Don't even know what it is. Exactly. I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, if you, I just did a Google search here, and it says saying it says the Black Knight satellite mystery. Um, there's a Black Knight YouTube thing. Um, are you on the computer still? Actually, I will be once I'm back inside. I'm out on the porch right now. Okay, well, I'll keep talking, and then uh, when you get in, just just put the Black Knight satellite. So you can, at least you can get a look at it and give me your thoughts on it. Um, right, gotcha. This is the leftover part of the show, folks. Just relax. We're having a good time. Yeah, <laughs> drinking a beer and smoking. And, you know, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, then I see uh, from AboveTopSecret.com, it says the 1,300-year-old satellite, the full story behind the Black Knight. Uh, so it, ha it has sort of this underground... Uh, the Black Knight satellite from ForbiddenHistory.info. So it's it's sort of bounced around here. It looks like it's been around uh, for a while now. Huh? But I don't know anything about it. I've never heard of it. So it's... well, I, I don't fully keep current on all this stuff. 
Uh, I was doing all my research, obviously, about 20 years ago, and uh, I do keep up on a lot of things, and I do follow up on my own research. But uh, I don't keep current with all of the uh, whatever buzz is going on in the paranormal community. Right. When I was doing the thing with Redfern, he was bringing stuff up I'd never heard of before. Hmm. Black-Eyed Kids? What's Black-Eyed Kids? They're like a singing group, aren't they, with Fergie or something? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who has a phenomenal voice, by the way. Who's that, Fergie? Yeah. She's great. I like Fergie. Incredible voice. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know, yeah. I'm, I'm at a loss to say anything beyond that, but yeah, incredible voice, incredible body as well. Let's mm-hmm. let's say that. Um, okay, well, while I wait for you to look at the at the black satellite thing on the picture, uh, she also wants to know if if Stargate could be real. I'm kind of I, I was sort of stifling laughter on that one, but since it's just you and me uh, and 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 all these listeners, uh, I could start. I actually now now that now I'm already backtracking on my own thing because the more I think about it. I, I, I do sort of uh, I wouldn't say subscribe to the reality of Stargate, but I don't I don't close the book on it either. So what do you think is is uh, is is Stargate the possibility uh, possible real? Well, that's a little complex. I don't know about wormholes or any of that. Uh, physicists stroke each other off heavily under the table and come up with mathematical equations to orgasm. It doesn't mean that they have the slightest idea what they're talking about. They just theorize a whole bunch of shit, and because they can put a lot of math onto it, they think it it sounds good, and the next thing you know, they're talking about them as though they're real. Hmm. We don't know that they're real. They don't occur in nature. We're positive of that. Einstein talked about the possibility that they exist, uh, but we've never seen any evidence that they do. We just theorize them, because they would be neat if they did. (laughs) We could use them if they existed. But we haven't found any evidence that they do. They certainly don't occur in nature, and we would not know how to make one. Uh, if the bunch of physicists stroking each other off under the table want to keep doing so and possibly come up with something, more power to them. Yeah. Uh, I'm the last person in the world to just look at something and say, ah, you know, if you can find something there, go for it. Uh, off the top of my head, I consider it probably pretty unlikely. Uh, I don't think we have them, let's put it that way, uh, but I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, that was the big debate, I think. Uh, there was a school of thought. Uh, a very small school of thought, maybe a preschool of thought, of uh, that the whole Iraq war was based on the decision to go in and stop Saddam Hussein from using a Stargate, or that he he had come upon Stargate technology. It was a pretty obviously a pretty uh, fringe theory, but that's much more elaborate than I would put it. What yeah. we did <laughs> do, we pilfered the hell out of the museums. Uh, the Baghdad battery, that's gone. That's probably in somebody's private collection now, along with all kinds of other ancient artifacts from uh, Sumer and Babylon, uh, which is very, very unfortunate. Hmm. Uh, right about uh, shortly before that, at the end of Clinton's administration, there was a question earlier about whether or not uh, evidence was deliberately suppressed. Absolutely. Uh, there were a whole number of sites that had Ogham writing on them and what appeared to be Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, in the Americas that were sandblasted clean, like about 1998, 1999, I think, right in there. The the government just went in and erased them. (laughs) It was Dr. Zayas blowing up the caves. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, there's there's deliberate suppression of a lot of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think we talked about this as far as, like, the Alexandrian Library and stuff, you know. Oh, God. For all we know, they had recorded how they built the pyramids there. We don't know. Hmm. We have no idea what we lost to the Library of Alexandria. It was just an incalculable loss. 
I never even gave it any thought, but when you say it like that, yeah, that is pretty that, – that is a possibility. It may have just been common knowledge back then. It may have been common knowledge, and now it's not. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Are you back to the computer so you can look at this black satellite? I will be shortly. I'm okay. finishing this little puppy up right now. No worries, no worries. I'm not going to rush you. Like I said, this is the this is the after party, so we're all. Well, good. I'm having a great time. Oh, hold on a moment. Enjoying myself. Yeah, sure. Someone knocking at my door. So hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Men in black. We're going to actually have a bit of a, a bit of a, an emergency here in the house, so we're going to have to cut the the after party short here. So. Oh, well. Are you going to be around uh, in about 45 minutes? I will call you, and we'll uh, finish it up, just you and I, and I'll paste it in later. Sure. All right, we'll do that, because i got to go look at what the hell is going on. we got a leak, a leak in the middle of the show, so that's never a good thing. On that note, we'll pause here. Uh, just to explain the weird happenstance just now for you and the listeners, you can, it's, it is the holiday season, so you can always count on uh, the water heater going. Uh, two days before Thanksgiving. So I had to rush out and figure out how to stop the bleeding, if you will, and uh, do some vacuuming. Luckily, it's all it's all better for now. Mine died two years ago, I can relate. I'm just really fortunate that it, we didn't find out about it until the, until the live show was over. Otherwise, it we probably would have had to cut the live show short. But luckily, we were in the after party, so... Let's just finish up uh, these remaining questions from the folks in the chat room. We uh, had Kimberly Rack. We talked about the Stargate situation. I think that's when things went haywire. But uh, the Black Satellite, the Black Knight Satellite, did you look at that thing? Yes, I did. Uh, now I know what it is. I hadn't heard it referred to under that name before. This is the uh, unknown satellite that was apparently tailing Sputnik when Sputnik was first launched. Uh, Sputnik was... The first satellite put into orbit, the Russians beat us to it. Everyone was very unhappy about that. They beat us to everything in space, just by the by. They got all the best, um, now they got all the best, uh, Nazi rocket scientists to the end of the war. Anyway, um, people still dispute the Black Knight satellite. It's pretty well documented that something was up there. Uh, that's kind of hard to hide, and it was seen on more than one occasion. It wasn't just after Sputnik. Uh, there were astronauts that reported seeing it. Whether they actually saw it or not, is is still in question. Uh, I find it kind of odd in this day and age especially that we can't peg every single satellite up there. Uh, and the Black Knight is one of those things that, depending on who you ask, they're either going to say, oh, it didn't exist, or, well, it was something natural, or it was uh, a secret satellite that couldn't be talked about at the time because of the Cold War. Hmm. Something was up there. I'm sure of that. John Keel wrote about it in his books, and I think uh, Donald Kehoe did too. Uh, so it dates back to 1960 anyway, at least our discovery of it. Now, in theory, again, on, depending on whoever you talk to, uh, there was someone who claimed to get a signal from it that uh, did a star map for 13,000 years ago the, from the uh, Epsilon Bodies system, I think. That's a very interesting claim, and I'd like to chase that down further if I could find anything more on it. Hmm. Uh, 13,000 years ago is just that date that keeps popping up over and over and over again, especially in my line of research. Um, I wouldn't necessarily discount it as uh, someone else's secret satellite. I wouldn't discount it as an extraterrestrial satellite either. Yeah. Uh, I, there's just really no way to tell. And again, depending on what source you read, uh, science, uh, I've been looking up some articles on this on the web uh, in the interim. Yeah. Uh, scientific pages will 
pretty much admit that it was there, but they debunk it as much as they possibly can or try and naturally explain it. I don't blame them. But even they admit, yeah, there's a possibility that there's something extra extraterrestrial up there. In any event, whatever it was, it had a polar orbit, and it might still be up there. And the polar orbit meant that it could pretty well scan everything. It wasn't an equatorial orbit. It could, it could kind of uh, relay information from pretty much the whole planet. Uh, it was more advanced than anyone at the time should have been able to have up there. I mean, in theory, we did not have a satellite up there, and Sputnik was the first one the Russians had up. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that the Russians had anything as advanced as the Black Knight satellite, whatever it was, at the time that they put up Sputnik. And certainly we didn't. Yeah. Uh, and if we did, we certainly couldn't admit it to anybody. Now, when you factor the Cold War in, there are a whole lot of UFO reports or any kind of extraterrestrial reports that have to be regarded not necessarily skeptically, but carefully. Uh, because there were a lot of things that we couldn't talk about, and if there were any secret projects going, definitely we had to keep them under the radar. I'm sure Roswell was kept under the radar largely because of that. And if we picked up a piece of extraterrestrial technology in 1947, the last thing in the world we would want is for the Russians to know that we had it. Or anyone else, for that matter. We'd want to exploit it long before they even knew we had it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you just punch in Black Knight, and it's all over the place. Uh, there are NASA pictures of it, clear ones. Yeah. Uh, and a matter of fact, the clear one that I saw, let me see if I can find the sign again. Hold on a second. It's weird. It does look more like a rock, though, than a ship, but I don't know how. I, I'm only looking at a couple pictures. Well, there's one. I can find you a sign. Hold on a second. Ah, here we go. Uh, I'm on www armaghplanet.com armagplanet.com Okay, there you go. Yeah, I just went to it. Okay, Armag, Armag Planetarium. Interesting. Ireland's leading center for astronomical education. Weird. That's okay, pretty well, I'm on a, a page called The Truth About the Black Knight Satellite Mystery. And there's a NASA picture here. Okay, it's the first one that comes up when you punch in Black Knight Satellite. Right. Yep. Uh, there's a NASA picture here showing the thing, which is partway down the page. Uh, and the picture that they have looks almost like the um, the stealth bomber. Yeah, I'm seeing it, yeah. That's very weird. At least that's what I would call it. If, mm -hmm. if I were just looking at this picture and they didn't tell me what it was, I'd say it was the stealth bomber. Yeah. I'm sure, uh, I have a feeling, I haven't read the article, but I presume that the Armagh Planetarium is saying that it's not a alien ship, so... Well, that's just they, based on based on the fact that it's a mainstream site, <laughs> right? Uh, they admit that there appeared to have been some kind of object up there, and, and well, here's the NASA picture. <laughs> so God knows what it is. Uh, one thing they tried to discount it as they thought it might be a blanket uh, that came off of the space station when a cover came off. Oh God, a black blanket. Yeah, I know. I find that one pretty outrageous too. I wouldn't even necessarily rule it out. I just put it on the far realm of possibility. Uh, but they did try and kind of toss that one out there. That's ridiculous. Um, They're also suggesting a declassified information uh, now released from that time suggests the object was a Corona spy satellite under disguise at the time of the U.S. Discoverer Research Satellite Program, or at least uh, at that time. So, yeah, they, they come up with alternate explanations for what it might be, but they at least admit that there appears to have been something up there. Hmm. <coughs> okay. Um, all right, we covered Stargates, so we don't need to re redo that. Uh, Red Sun Superman, in the second to last question, he wants to know if you believe that Roddenberry really didn't have much to do with Star Trek's origins. Supposedly, some other guy is responsible for Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica. I've never heard Leslie of that. Stevens. We're referring okay. to Leslie Stevens. Mm -hmm. uh, when I did that other uh, podcast with Chris Knowles, we were talking about that specifically. 
Uh, Knowles and I are both very seriously into the original Outer Limits and the original Star Trek, and especially into Leslie Stevens. Uh, Leslie Stevens was the eminence grease behind a whole lot of sci-fi that was going on in the 1960s, and he was the kind of guy that did not mind taking a back seat or even necessarily getting any credit at all. Gene Roddenberry actually had an office at the Daystar Productions studios that did The Outer Limits in 1964 uh, during the first season when Leslie Stevens was most involved with it. That didn't come up until decades later when someone at Daystar mentioned it in passing in an interview. He just said that Roddenberry was at the, uh, the studios so often while they were filming The Outer Limits that he had his own office there. Uh, what's funny is Roddenberry never advertised that fact, nor did Leslie Stevens. The suggestion for Captain Kirk, originally Gene Roddenberry wanted uh, Jeffrey Hunter to play Captain Kirk. And the person who suggested that it be William Shatner was Leslie Stevens, interestingly huh. enough. Wait. And he made the right call. Stevens had much more, uh, um, Shatner had much more charisma and the right kind of feel for that role, I think. Um, certainly he's much more memorable. And uh, the world would have been greatly different if he had not played that part. So that was Stevens' suggestion. Uh, the original thing that, that Roddenberry came up with, uh, you can actually find his original praises for Star Trek online. I don't know exactly where it's at, but if you, if you just search around a little bit, you'll find it. Mm. It's very badly thought out. It's not at all what we recognize today. And it's entirely possible, uh, I can't say that I know this, but it's entirely possible that Leslie Stevens had a, a very heavy hand in Star Trek and that Gene Roddenberry was just basically helming it yeah. for everybody. Hmm. Uh, I would not rule that out. I can't say that for a fact. Uh, that's something uh, you might want to email Knowles on his site, The Secret Son, and ask him about that. He's got a lot to say on that particular subject. Okay. Uh, but certainly he and I have talked about it quite a bit. All right. What about Battlestar Galactica? Kind of the same thing? Battlestar Galactica, that was Leslie Stevens. His oh, okay. name is actually on the credits. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, he, he had a hand in that, no question. Okay. All right. Um, and then the final question, uh, sort of a lighthearted one to wrap it up. What are your Thanksgiving plans? It's probably a good way to close out uh, this year's Rucks game. My Thanksgiving plan. I actually have plans this Thanksgiving. I don't awesome. always. Uh, I've already had my dinner with my mom. We try and avoid it on the actual holiday just because parking's a little bit difficult there and it gets to be a bit of a zoo. So we usually do it either right before or right after, and we did it before. Uh, and, of course, I'll call her on the phone and we'll chat for a little while. Uh, I've got a couple of my best friends coming over on Thanksgiving, and we're just going to make a whole bad movie night day of it. Nice. We're going to have a ball. Do you know what you're going to be watching yet? We sure do. We usually go on themes, and uh, just, was it last night? Yeah, it was just last night we were talking about this, so what do you guys want to watch? And uh, they're in the mood for comedies right now, so we're actually going to watch Meet the Spartans, uh, which is the satire of 300. Oh, God, it's terrible. And, I've seen that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we love that kind of thing. Yeah. And they haven't seen it. So we're going to see that. We're going to watch the uh, the Twilight satire, Vampires Suck. Uh, we'll probably watch something like Transylvania or other very terrible movies, but very funny movies, and just kind of make a day of it. And I'm sure we'll probably pop a couple of decent ones in before the day is out, too. Nice, nice. Sounds good. You kind of have similar plans to me, kind of low-key. I'll probably – I try to catch up on the big summer comedies around yeah. Thanksgiving, so yeah. I'll watch uh, – I don't even know yet. I have to look at them, but Hangover 3 and some of the other, uh, whatever the big big summer comedies were, I'll watch those uh, on Thursday. If we'd figured it out sooner, I would have put This is the End at the top of yes. my, my rental list. I'm planning on seeing that. that, yeah. So that'll be good. 
All right. Well, on that note, sorry for the uh, long pause that people don't know we're talking about, but I had to go. <laughs> I had to we go. always have long pauses. Yeah. What is it with you guys? <laughs> I had to go tend to a uh, to a leaking water heater, which uh, thankfully didn't apparently get noticed until after the live show. Thank goodness. It's not fun. Hopefully, you can get that taken care of tomorrow. That's what we're hoping for, because otherwise, it's going to have to wait till Black Friday, and God only knows if they're going to be able to get out here by then. So it's a, it's a, probably the worst possible time, literally. Yeah, right? and they'll, they'll <laughs> charge you for it too. See if you can get them out tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do our best. Um, but nonetheless, I will not let that uh, mar this year's Rucksgiving. So thank you so much, Bruce, for coming back on the show, doing the Rucksgiving, including the uh, the Rucksgiving leftovers, the after chat. I really do appreciate that. Always a pleasure. It was great fun. <laughs>